0: everybody and welcome back to lighting the pipes we're very very excited to be here with you today to talk about the final raymond chandler novel playback and this of course is going to bring an end to what's been a really exciting ride for myself scott and josh as we've gone through the stories of philip marlowe and this season of the pipes so yeah welcome very much indeed it's easter weekend and we've got quite a good show lined up i think
1: Indeed, yeah, uh, we got quite the bio, uh, bittersweet for sure, and uh, maybe a little bit melancholic, but I mean that's fitting for Chandler. Mm-hmm, and then yeah. we got uh, another great summary from you, absolutely, in the style of previous ones that you that that you've been doing that are just knocking them out of the park, in my opinion. Thank uh, you very much. Ab- absolutely, I think you I think you Scott raise the art of plot summaries. Uh, on mystery novel podcast or a novel podcast in general, uh, to the next level, in my opinion. So I look forward to hearing your hard-boiled narration, almost as I look forward to re- reading the next Chandler novel or Chandler-esque novel. <laughs>
0: well, like I like I said to you last last time, buddy. You know, it's just a fun way for me to you know, to make something decent out of what we're doing. So I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I hope the listeners are enjoying those plot summaries too. But we know that many of you are familiar with the the Chandler stories and the Marlowe sweep. Kind of is a sweep, isn't
1: it? Like, I guess I think so. Once yeah, once we get to, once we talk about like the end of playback in particular, like, it, it, it was kind of a sweep. Although, I will say that having read up, you know, on the bio and also about um uh, Raymond Chandler's like last works, because there was a book I mentioned last episode called Poodle Springs, mm-hmm, and he wrote four chapters of this book, but it was never completed, and it was tended mm-hmm. to be another M- Marlowe adventure. With him and a certain someone, uh, like living in a small community, and him being a local detective in that very kind of Lahala kind of community, I guess where like Chandler mm-hmm. himself lived,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, yeah, it, the plot summary is pretty interesting. But uh, if we if we have time, we'll go over it a little bit. But uh, it was made into a, a final novel until, uh, back in the nineteen eighties uh, with uh, Robert Parker, who is also a well known mystery writer.
0: So he carried on the story, right? He picked up and finished it.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like um, Robert. You know, when Robert Jordan, he was—he's the author of the fantasy series mm-hmm. Wheel of Time, mm-hmm. uh, a fourteen-book long series. He passed away of cancer, but he let his wife and then this other author, Brandon Sa- Brandon Sanderson. Finish the story for him because he had all the notes and everything all prepared, right? Sure. So, and Chandler had all his notes prepared for for the for, like he had the four chapters done, but he also had a complete outline that the okay. publisher and Parker were able to put together. So all that's right. always good when an author you know cares enough about his work. I mean, despite you know being in a terminal situation, yeah. that they were that you know that he was able to go ahead and I don't know he wasn't in terminal position per se because his death, as we'll get into it, was despite you know his condition it was sort of sudden in its own way but mm. such things are when you're when you, when you're when you have that sort of i guess frailty you know to mm. your physique and to your body and to your mental Mind. and physical health
0: yeah. at, the, at the time right so ah, right, well then let me ask you josh um is it fair to call playback chandler's last novel what do you think well in context of what you've just shared
1: You you could say that it's a final novel in terms of like the Marlowe sweep, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And you could peg, you know, you could peg the ending as sort of like a happy ending, so to speak, for Marlowe. I, I guess the term I'm looking for is canon. I guess you could say mm-hmm, in the Marlowe mm-hmm. canon, this is the end of the story. The yeah. other stories, you can choose to incorporate them into the canon or not. Now, whether or not the mystery writers of America or other det- or other detective fiction, mystery fiction, uh, fan clubs, and etc., whether or not they consider them canon, I'm not mm-hmm. sure.
0: Sure. But, okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's definitely our canon, though, because, I mean, we're, we're mm-hmm. not going to pursue Poodle Springs. Maybe we will someday, who knows? Mm-hmm. But in terms of yeah. our Marlowe sweep, I would say that, we're, that we've are that we completed what we need to read Marlowe-wise, I, I think for, mm-hmm. at least in terms of the novels anyway.
0: Yeah, I, and I think you're absolutely right. I suppose, though, just from a structuralist point of view or a, um, a reputation point of view, do you think that if the notes were there to complete the story, by the original author and four chapters had begun by the original author do you think that it's safe to call poodle springs a chandler novel though it was completed by somebody else
1: yes absolutely okay cool after after reading what like tom williams in his uh book here the mysterious light something in the light the life of Mm -hmm. Raymond chandler and other sources it's pretty clear that uh, it was intended to be like a sequel to playback
0: Okay. Nice. Very cool. So he wasn't done when, I mean, when, when he wrote, uh, when he finished playback, he, in his mind, Chandler wasn't really finished with this character. He had more planned for him. Hmm.
1: I also go into another project, another Marlowe project that he was working on at the same time when he was working on Poodle Springs. Because you know what he's like. He always puts something on the back burner, tries another another story instead, works that out. Then he mm-hmm. goes back to the other story. He's, he's always been that way, right? So he did have another Marlowe adventure involved. And that was, in fact, made into an HBO series, or at least the, the brief outline of it was, an HBO miniseries in the 80s starring Powers
0: Booth as Marlowe. Ah, interesting! Very interesting. So, so many different um, incarnations of Philip Marlowe, aren't there? Yeah,
1: Young Powers Booth of Marlowe would be interesting, that's for sure. I mean, he could definitely do the hard-boiled voice and and, and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I've always found Powers Booth as a as an actor, he was very a tough mofo. Like Marlowe's a tough guy. I mean, Bogie played him for God's sake. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like. There's a little bit of I don't know a little bit of uh, of gallantry and I don't know like I just don't see Marlowe as like someone who I could easily read as like someone who could easily play like a villain type you know what I mean but again yeah. Bogart did play villains before he was a a, a big star so mm-hmm. he it, did yeah yeah so I mean I guess he could go either way mm. but uh, but anyways we're, di- we're we're digressing now uh, we're just talking about uh, just the 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 peripheries at the moment now.
0: We are, but that's uh, that's all right. It's it's good to uh, to to bring us back to pull it pull it back, uh, pull back with <laughs> yeah. playback, pull back with playback. With play- there you go. Pull back with playback. <laughs> right. Well, look, indeed, everybody. Everybody, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed what we've done so far with the Raymond Chandler novels. We've certainly had a lot of fun. I know if i have been thinking about my own experience here, Josh, starting off with The Big Sleep, I think I might have mentioned this last episode. I wasn't quite sure if I was going to get into this. I totally got into this. I've really enjoyed it. And as I was um, kind of gushing last episode, I was gushing last episode with The Long Goodbye saying it wasn't just one of my favorite novels of this little adventure, but actually one of my favorite books that I've read in a long, long time that I think mm. des- deserves to be appreciated and recommended outside of its uh, genre borders, if you know what I mean. It was such yes. such a great experience that I was quite excited to pick this up, and I know that that Chandler is is, is not in a good place right now, and I know you're going to get into that, and I'm really excited to hear what you've got, so before we break into your context… Uh, which, of course, is based on your research into the life of Chandler. That's been such a wonderful little sideline along our ju- along our voyage here. Have you anything to raise or discuss uh, before we before we just start this episode on playback?
1: No, I don't think so. I think we should dive into you know Chandler's last years, and we'll go into your plot summary, and then give our you know, and then we'll go through our pipes. Of course,
0: yeah, superb. I am excited. So here we go. Let's segue in then, Josh, to your feature on Marlowe, where he is. And how this story came about. All right.
1: So when we left off our biographical segment on Raymond Chandler in the last episode, uh, we ended with the publication of The Long Goodbye, And then, of course, the death of Sissy. And this was a devastating, crippling blow to Raymond Chandler because his anchor, his hype woman, uh, his partner, in more ways than one, uh, was gone. And it would be something that would be a hole in his life that he would try to fill, particularly with drinking. And this is something that uh, other uh, literary historians and biographers of Raymond Chandler seem to agree on. Uh, including uh, Tom Williams, my main resource for this, his, for this biographical segment. Uh, I've mentioned before his uh, Mysterious Something in the Light, The Life of Raymond Chandler, um, is one of my key sources for this podcast in terms of the biographical and research, as well as the critical reception and publication history. And I feel that uh, it's important to bring that up, especially when it comes to breaking down the final years of Raymond Chandler's life. This was the first time that Chandler w- would be without Sissy, since their separation that followed his firing from Dabney Oil years back. As you recall, uh, he had made some enemies there. Uh, he was having sexual escapades, extramarital affairs, uh, copious amounts of drinking, basically a state of drunkenness, and uh, he definitely made some enemies for sure. And at one point, you know, gun in hand, he walked into a colleague's house and he threatened to kill himself. He was talked down, of course, and eventually Sissy took him back and that's when he started to sober up and he would begin writing for The Black Mask, which launched his literary career going forward. So, I mean, a bless- it was one door closing, a, a very important door to close and leave behind, and another door opening uh, to the rest of his life, basically, and the legacy that he would leave. And Sissy was with him all the way. With Sissy's passing, he was at this. he was in that same state of despair again. And he nearly carried out his suicide, but luckily the first shot missed and the gun that he used was poorly maintained, which prevented the second shot from firing. And this saved his life long enough for the police and his poor secretary, we mentioned in the previous episode, uh, Juanita Messick, to intervene uh, and get Chandler in a rehab facility to dry out, even one of those ones that had electroshock therapy if necessary. But he checked out uh, very soon afterwards and found himself unable to live in the house that he and Sissy owned in La Hola. So he headed for London. It offered a great potential support group for Chandler. First, you had Hamish Hamilton, his UK publisher, who invited him out to lunch and placed him in a circle of friends, a group of artists and writers and poets revolving around Hamilton and the poet Stephen Spender. Through Spender, he met luminaries like W.H. Auden and at some point Ian Fleming, someone who was evidently inspired by Chandler's work. There's even a radio interview between the two of them from 1958, uh, several months before Chandler's death in 59. And it can be found on YouTube for those who are interested. And it's one of those rare instances where you can hear Chandler's recorded voice. Uh, He's clearly intoxicated or at least coming off a hangover of some sorts uh, during that particular interview. So it's a bit sad in that fashion, but he does have a very interesting conversation with Ian Fleming about uh, American thriller writing and thriller writing in general, uh, comparing their characters, Marlowe and James Bond, as well as discussing American gangsters and American criminal society and how Fleming wrote gangsters in his own way and how he he used Marlowe as sort of an inspiration for that. It's actually a really good uh, interview. So please go look for it um, if you want to hear what A, Ray sounds like and you also want to see, see him talk with Ian Fleming, which is pretty cool. Now, Stephen Spender was a homosexual. Uh, of course, back then, I mean, those were relationships that you had in secret and everyone kind of knew about, but as long as you didn't, you know, get yourself out in the public scandal, you know, you, you were pretty much okay, as long as your family got along with the, with the idea. I mean, we look at poor Alan Turing, you know, the brilliant mathematician. We're uh, working with the Enigma program in Bletchley Park. And, of course... He ended up being chemically castrated, despite his efforts that he brought to the British war machine uh, in defeating Nazi codes. And if you look actually um, up Alan Turing, a bit of a sidebar I know, but uh, his family didn't get an apology until decades later from the British government. Now Spender married a beautiful woman, or you could say maybe she was his beard in a way, named Natasha Litvin, and she was an accomplished pianist and concert performer. And she took a shine to Chandler and he the same. She was also a painter an artistic model and of course a piano player. And if you think of Sissy, having been a painter and an artistic model, Sissy was also a piano player. And as you recall, her first husband Julian Pascal was well known for the time. Now I'm, I'm paraphrasing from the Williams book, but you can see how Chandler was drawn to Natasha Spender. Williams is also quite determined to promote the idea that the remaining years of Chandler's life would exhibit a pattern of behavior that he would see himself as a real-life Marlowe, the shop-soiled, or in this case, drink-soiled, errant knight saving the damsel, in distress. Natasha Spender wrote a posthumous memoir on Chandler, His Long Goodbye, but nowhere does Spender suggest that the relationship was in any way sexual. As it happened, Chandler was ambitious to that end in regards to Natasha Spender, but despite some hints from Chandler that a coupling may have occurred between the two, one must remember that Chandler would embellish from time to time especially about his sexual exploits. In fact, one of his colleagues suggested that Chandler wasn't a booze-rattled mess that the Spenders seemed to evoke, but someone who was actually very confident and successful with women. Or at least he managed in his sobering hours to keep up the pretense of such a thing. Now, Natasha and her friends were pretty much became minders for Chandler, uh, babysitters, you could say. Uh, they would bask in his company, and they would keep him in the center of attention. They would invite him on trips to the country, but this didn't stop him from his chronic drinking, uh, but they were there the, most of the time, you know, to we'll look after him, you know, because they knew about his suicide attempts. They couldn't quite accept that it was just a call for attention. It could be something much more They were concerned with him. They loved him in their own way and they wanted to make sure that he was all right. So he did have these people looking out for him. He would even test, you know, that tolerance, you know, with these early morning phone calls where he would ruminate drunkenly about life and death, just basically musing philosophically and getting quite melancholy. And this was like in the early hours of the morning. And these were just methods, you know, combined with the drinking that he would use just to get him through the night so that he could, you know, as William says, you know, be, be prepared for brunch in the morning, or, or or so that he could, you know, be prepared to meet for breakfast in the morning with these people. That was something that he looked forward to, and that's what kind of what got him to finally go to sleep. In addition to this, he would also make himself a drunken spectacle at these functions, and they tolerated him, and they supported him. Now, in the Williams book, it mentions that Chandler himself seems to be viewing their caring for him as both... Flattering and charming, but also a tad condescending. And you can kind of see this in the writing here of some letters that he wrote, albeit they are very self deprecating. The whole thing last night was rather weird. Natasha Spender is a charming and devoted hostess and served up a magnificent meal, and everybody got tight. They poured it on me a little too thick, I imagine. A Sonia somebody. That was Sonia Orwell, by the way, said that I was the darling of British intellectuals and all the poets raved about me and that Edith Sitwell sat up in bed, probably looked like Henry IV Part Two, and read my stuff with passion. The funny part of it was that they seemed quite sincere. I tried to explain to them that I was just a beat-up pulp writer and that in the USA, I ranked slightly above a mulatto. Well, anyhow, it was a lot of fun. So, I mean, you have subconscious racism here with, with an element of self-pity with an element of uh, humility and uh, more self-pity. So much one about, you know, there's racist comments, but there's almost like there's a feeling of him sympathizing with, you know, people of lower background of a different race, you know, that were marginalized in America at the time. And he kind of feels like them. Now, whether or not you draw that that's racist and you easily well could, but it was also, I think, someone who was just very sad and unsatisfied with what he had done in his life so far and I think this crowd you know despite you know their passion for him and for his writing he just couldn't really come to believe it and partly I think that was a bit of denial on his part in May 1955 Williams mentions that Chandler was thrown out of his hotel his drunkenness and womanizing quote-unquote reaching its breaking point aware of his support circle he aspired to get himself sober Williams and other sources attribute this to his romantic interest in Natasha Spender, but also the specter of Maurice Chandler, his father. This figure haunted him because he remembered the abuse that you know that Maurice Chandler inflicted upon his mother, and it can definitely be argued that this was another reason for why he wished to sober up, was to evade those demons, um, for avoiding history repeating itself. I guess you could say. And initially, you know. Going back into the biography of Chandler, we remember that he only started to drink when he was at war. I mean, it was it was there that was when he came comfortable with the bottle. Before he wasn't much of an alcoholic whatsoever, and it was the, it was drinking and the experience that that he had in the war that brought this on. Now we don't know, you know, what situation of low feeling that brought Maurice Chandler to drink, but from Ray, it was a way to deal with I think with the trauma of the war. Uh, and to keep his wits with him and, as, and, and as, a, as a form of escapism. and I think he's still using this now in his own way to forget Sissy's death and and you know carrying on with it with his life but at the same time it stems from something. Uh, this is an excerpt from a letter written in London in September 1955. I start off with a drink of white wine and end up drinking two bottles of scotch a day. Then I stop eating. After four or five days of that I am ill. I have to quit and the withdrawal symptoms are simply awful. I shake so that I can't hold a glass of water. I can't stand up or walk without help. One day I vomited 18 times. I wasn't sick at all, but something kept dropping down at the back of my throat from inflamed sinuses and every time that happened I gagged my life out. For three days I could drink nothing but sips of ice water. I think it's these revelations clearly that placed him on the path of sobriety. In 55, he returned to the U.S. only briefly because his visa had expired, and he was only in New York a brief time when he decided to return to London. But he left his sobriety home in America, the news that Natasha had to undergo a surgical procedure, something to which Williams describes as being fairly routine, but other sources indicate, you know, that she did have breast cancer at one point in her life, I believe in her 40s, but I believe this was after Raymond Chandler. But more to the point, this triggered Chandler seeing Natasha going down Sissy's path, and he started to drink again. And though Natasha did not suffer any complications with this procedure, whatever it might have been, he was, in a, he was already in a drunken binge, one of which he jumped from hotel to hotel. And even that was still a productive period for him because his writing fever started to return with letters and poems he would take up between hangovers. And because of his long stay in the UK his citizenship in the USA began to be threatened, so he would be pulled between the US and England back and forth over the next few years. Now back in the US, he resolved to chase his sobriety again after curing himself of malnourishment to a certain extent, learning to cook for himself, and he took up with a correspondence named Louise Launer who lived in San Francisco, and he went there to court her. but. He admitted, and this is according to letters left by Loner to the University of California, that he was still in love with Natasha Spender. And with this one-sided investment in that relationship, his relationship with Loner, of course, deteriorated. But he would see Natasha Spender again when she came to visit to the U.S. for a concert tour in the December of 1956. Now, Natasha's friend, the writer Christopher Isherwood, hosted a dinner party at his house in Los Angeles, and it was at this occasion that Chandler was compelled not only to start writing again, but also writing Philip Marlowe again. Isherwood was apparently a big fan of Marlowe and Chandler's writing, and Ray was charmed and flattered by him. But uh, Loner wasn't the only, besides Spender, this wasn't the only woman in his life in these past, in these final years. There was a correspondence with an Australian fan named Deirdre Gartrell, and another, and another Australian-born woman, a divorcee named Jean Fracasse, where Chandler found himself as a, a vuncular figure to his children. Echoes of Sissy, Echoes of Marlowe, Jean was an accomplished pianist as well, and being harassed by her husband through a bitter long divorce process. This placed Chandler in the Marlowe persona once again, and his drinking did not help this at all, because it blurred the line between reality and fantasy. With this new focus, I think his relationship with Spender began to fragment, because during the last days of her trip, she chose to spend her final days in California with her recently widowed close friend, Evelyn Hooker, and he resented this bitterly. Um, In fact, this is when he cut off all communication with uh, Natasha Spender, perhaps feeling that he had something else on the horizon, a bit shallow of him as well, but... Also, someone who was looking for attention, looking for companionship in some way that he knew Natasha Spender would not give him. And maybe finally seeing uh, Jean, Jean Fricasse, uh, he, he began to realize the futility of his feelings towards Natasha Spender and that they were not going to be reciprocated in the way that he wanted. Amidst the drinking in 56 and 57, he he plugged away at the first two drafts of his final novel, Playback picking up from the Universal Pictures uh, film that he made a screenplay for in the late 40s. One that was never produced, but one that uh, was supposed to be an original story that, of course, would, in this case here, become a Philip Marlowe story. Now, the other woman, besides Fracasse, besides Gertrell and Lohner, as in court, and, of course, Natasha Spender, the other woman in his life was his literary agent, Helga Green, who he had met through uh, th- through the spenders. But more on her in a moment. Playback was published in the UK uh, in July 1958 and the US in October of that year. The critical response was rather tepid. A second-rate novel by a first-rate novelist was what, what was said. And whether or not, you know, you can see that the, as, as the conclusion of the Marlowe sweep in terms of the canon, uh, he did have another story in the works, Poodle Springs, But that would only be half completed in the end. Well, not even half completed. He did four chapters of of the thing and and never really got to it. So, you know, can we see playback as the end of the of the of the Philip Marlowe storyline and the rest of it just sort of like fragments of something that he wanted to continue with? And do we also look at playback in terms of a work made at this time where his life was not was not the best? and this definitely distracted uh, his writing style in terms of not just quantity but quality as well. Despite all this though, the literary bug had bitten Chandler. If you recall back when he was planning his outline of books that he would write with Sissy, one of these things he wanted to do was create the great British novel and this was the story English Summer um, that he wanted to put to page and this was something that he was considering. At the same time, While this was going on, his relationship with Fracasse deepened, and this prompted a return to London, where he invited the Fracasse to join him. But for reasons up for debate, despite him having intentions to follow Jean and her family back to Australia uh, on that vacation, he never went uh, and stayed in London and got a place near Helga Green, his literary agent. Now... Through Green um, and, of course, uh, the Spender Circle, this is how he met Ian Fleming and how they kind of had a a brief acquaintance in his final years. He rented an apartment near Helga Green and she would resume the babysitting services that the Spenders had provided in 55 and 56. But as in those times before, where they were essentially a suicide watch to keep Chandler's spirits up, and I say that pun intended because, indeed, Chandler still kept his other spirits up, uh, he did become more social with the Hamish Hamilton employees however and he would go to you know having a night in the local pubs but again this involved drinking and he would also drink in front of green and he would drink at home but as long as someone was there uh to be with him then everyone assumed that it was okay of course it wasn't this was a man who was literally drinking himself to death who's already suffered from malnourishment and uh, other symptoms related to chronic alcoholism now green even played the spender's tactic of taking Chandler on vacation with her as a way to dry him up, to get him distracted. And Williams talks about how they agreed upon to go to Italy, particularly Naples, um, when they had lunch with Ian Fleming. Now, the impetus for this uh, trip as well was the Sunday Times wanted Chandler to interview Lucky Luciano uh, when he was there. And that was something that uh, Chandler was eager to set up. I'll get luciano in a minute but it was because of this uh possible interview and just the way and just an excuse i think uh, that green wanted to dry chandler up so to speak that they decided upon um italy and it was during this trip that we get to the last interesting development of chandler's life because during this time he was drunk and miserable he didn't want to see the sights uh and he found Helga Green very bossy and they did not get along. There was a lot of tension in the relationship while he was there, they're snapping at each other and this you know to her chagrin and it was not a uh, ideal situation whatsoever, and it definitely put a strain on whatever relationship they had, whether it was platonic or apparently romantic, uh, it's hard to say. but while he was in Naples, he did manage to score an interview with one Charles Luciano, as I mentioned, lucky Luciano the one-time Prohibition gangster that worked under Arnold Rothstein in New York before, you know, like his contemporaries, Meyer Lansky and Al Capone, he set out on his own. And of course, it was Luciano that united the five families of New York under his dominion and set the foundations of the modern mafia. Now, at this point, Luciano had retired to Italy and was ripe for Chandler to interview him. Chandler conducted an interview with Luciano, and in his writings of that interview, Williams says that he defended the notorious gangster, perhaps taking the mindset of him being the resulting symptom of a growing systemic issue of corruption in the US body politic. None of the big papers or magazines would bite on the interview, however, probably given Luciano's reputation, though it was Sunday Times who were initially compelling him to the interview, once they read his defense of a man as a scapegoat for the system, they decided not to print it. And Ray's assessment of Luciano as a man shows an incredible A sense of uh, naivety and I think blindness, particularly in regards to the character of Luciano. As Tom Williams says here, you know, this is a reflection of Ray's earliest ideas about criminals, that he articulated in Farewell My Lovely and later novels, that no one is entirely bad. Evil might exist, Carmen Sternwood surely is evil with her serpentine qualities, but most criminals have more complicated motivations. That said, Ray may also have been taken in by Luciano. And there are parts of the, the interview, as I mentioned, where he seems very myopic about this, um, that he's not really seeing the other side of things here, and he's only seeing what he wants to see. Now, I'm quoting, I am was quoting William's uh, paragraph there, but one of the things that Ray argued about Luciano was that he had been framed. Every so often, we try to sell our consciences by selecting a highly publicized scapegoat in order to create the illusion that our laws are being rigidly enforced. In 1936, Luciano had reached a position of sufficient eminence to be selected. Some such scapegoats are guilty, some half are doubtfully guilty, and some, not many, I hope, are framed. I believe Luciano was deliberately framed by an ambitious prosecutor. He was outside the law, technically speaking, but I don't believe the crime with which he was charged, compulsory prostitution, and for which he was convicted, had anything to do with his real activities. And going back to that naivety, he describes Luciano as such, He seemed to me about as much as like a tough mobster as I am like the late, unlamented Mussolini. He had a soft voice, a patient, sad face, and is extremely courteous in every way. This might be all a front, but I don't think I'm that easily fooled. A man who has been involved in brutal crimes bears a mark. Luciano seemed to be a lonely man who had been endlessly tormented and yet bore little or no malice. I liked him and had no reason not to. He is probably not perfect, but neither am I. (laughs) I mean, that's a bit of a leap. Chandler, I just have to say, I mean, this is a man who is pretty much blurring reality and fantasy already, you know, by becoming Marlowe in his own way with all the women in his life and and doing the best he can to escape the personal misery he feels since Sissy's death and, and his lack of motivation for the rest of his life, that, you know, that suicidal tick that's underneath him, you know, which is probably related in a way to his alcoholism. And... You can just tell right now that he is not looking in reality in a sober way whatsoever when he's talking about a man like Luciano. It's a bit mystifying to be honest, but it's also kind of a sad marker of how far I think Chandler has gone from his more rational self. Williams indicates that the trip and Raymond Chandler's copious consumption of grappa and other spirits kept Ray drunk most of the time. And again, we have this tension growing between him and Helga. Upon their return, which was soon after the interview, Chandler relapsed into chronic drinking. And just as many times before, under the Spender's auspices, he ended up in the hospital. He dried out and did his best to become sociable, but his cash flow was being depleted. Green and her friends began investing in his remaining funds uh, in a bank in the Bahamas. And Chandler did begin to start a new but never completed a Philip Marlowe novel again, Poodle Springs. But he suddenly returned to the US, La Hola particularly, because he received word that Gene Fercasi's husband had died. Ever the gallant, he met her in a La Hala as a support for his new uh, for this new development in her life, uh, as her dead husband had ensured she would not get a penny out of him, leaving her with absolutely nothing. But despite his being there, he was supported by a care worker from England named Don Santry, who accompanied him to the US, and this left Chandler you know, at his house regardless, taking up the drink again. Sanctuary would return to England, replaced by a woman named Kay West, who Chandler also took on as his secretary and seemed also charmed by her and was probably having those same kind of allusions towards their relationship. And though he had written Jean Fracassi into his will, he focused all his attentions on West, causing a rift into whatever romantic relationship that he had with Jean. Wilms mentioned a new Marlowe novel was conceived, even with Poodle Springs on the back burner, but this would be something that would never really see fruition, besides like a, a, a mini series in the nineteen eighties. Eventually, West would leave, like so many women in this man's life, uh, because of this tension. And she reported to Helga Green in London that Chandler was an absolute mess. Green soon arrived in Laholla with another caretaker for Chandler, and it seems that Jean was almost out of the picture at this point. Such had the tension risen since Kay West's arrival and departure. And, and of course, it's not surprising that a somewhat sobered-up Raymond Chandler would follow Helga Green back to London one last time. It was here in London that he was the guest of honour to a reception held by the Mystery Writers of America. That was the pretense, at least, for him going, and why Green wanted him to come. But, you know, he had other intentions at the back of his mind. But, you know, this was an honour in itself that they would make him president of the Mystery Writers of America. Uh, because despite his ambitions beyond the detective genre, he was gracious and composed, uh, despite his condition, when he spoke in front of them. This validation of what was essentially his life work may not have been his attention all those years, but it did please him greatly. And this happy moment was soon undercut with a disaster. A besotted Chandler, perhaps perked up to a sober extent by this honor and knowing deep down that he needed love and companionship, another sissy, so to speak, to stoke his flames, he decided to ask Helga's father a scion of the Guinness family for his daughter's hand in marriage. And what was that disaster? Well, of course, Guinness refused. Because despite the high level of composure that Chandler attempted to evoke, Guinness saw through those layers, and even though he had done all that he could to bring himself to sobriety, it was the age difference between Chandler and his daughter, which was just substantial enough for Guinness to refuse. So defeated, Chandler seemed to take on a cold, and he used this as possibly a pretense to return to the United States that dry California weather being the perfect salve for a cold, rather wet London. But he would not return. After returning from New York on March 23, 1959, the cold had developed into pneumonia and Chandler was brought to Scripps Clinic outside of Santa Fe from La Jolla, where he was hospitalized. On the 26th of March, three days later, he died. He was buried at Mount Hope Cemetery in San Diego, California. His funeral was attended by 17 people, one of them being a representative of the Mystery Writers of America. Helga Green, because it was a bank holiday, did not attend and was also able not to send flowers, which kind of puts a quota on that relationship if you think about it. But not to end abruptly there, a final note, it was not until 2010 that the remains of Sissy were transferred from the cremation facility at Cypress View Mausoleum in La Hola all the way to Chandler's own burial spot at Mount Hope in San Diego. This is because Chandler left no instructions for his burial. So the two were reunited in a private reinterment with her own remains placed next to Chandler's at Mount Hope. It's a bittersweet romantic note to end on, but it seems right on the nose for Raymond Chandler.
0: Wow, fantastic stuff there, Josh, and really, really quite uh, sad. I mean, I, I don't want to just put put a, a final underline on it like that because there was still a lot of creativity at the end of Marlowe's life. But Chandler's exhausted. life, you mean. yeah, to Chandler's life. Sorry, yes, indeed. Yeah, um, but but I mean, as I was yeah. saying,
1: like the the blur between Chandler and Marlowe as, as he got more and mm-hmm, more, you know, mm-hmm. into his condition towards the end of his life and all the women in his life at that time and. How he was trying to court them in his own way, or believe that he was doing so. There was sort of that Marlowe persona was taking over him. Yeah. You know how we talked about Ian Fleming about how Bond was sort of like the when Bond when Fleming was working for the uh, you know the Foreign Service the Foreign sorry for uh, Naval Intelligence mm-hmm. in World War Two and planning all these missions and guys like you know Christopher Lee would go on these missions and do the dirty work, right? It would you know like that was with James Bond, you know Ian Fleming's. Supervert man version of himself, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. guess you could say, and so is you know Mar- was Marlowe uh, someone in which Raymond Chandler lived through vicariously through his character, and mm-hmm. I think going through your summary of playback and and our, and you know uh I think well I think you know the readers will see you know what I, what, what I've been talking about. sorry, our mm-hmm. listeners will see from what we, from what I've been talking about in his biography that that may definitely be the case, and you know that's something yeah. to discuss for sure.
0: It is. And I, I guess, you know, broader strokes, writers who create these sort of series characters at some point, particularly if they last a long time with them, at some point, they're probably going to have those blurred lines, you know. You're probably going to write a bit of yourself into that person or at least into that world.
1: Yeah. it's. Uh, I think it's inevitable. As someone who has tried writing myself, you know, and, and done, you know, some decent work with it, for sure, mm-hmm. you know, in, 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 this, in my own way, in terms of not getting something off the ground entirely but at least you know c- c- completing something in in the sense where you see where characters go from beginning to end and you do see yourself in your writings and you do see other people and people you know and your families and your friends and and, and just people you run into in your own life or something in real life that inspires you you do put that in your writing regardless mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so i think in a way everything ha- regardless of what period we're writing in or what we're writing about i should say Uh, We are always, I think, being anachronistic, Mm -hmm. even though we're not trying to be, you know, like, it's, it's it's inevitable for us to write ourselves, you know, as we see ourselves unconsciously in our, Mm -hmm. in our own writing, I suppose you could say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess maybe some of this chat about Chandler and Marlowe and those blurred lines uh, is best saved for after we review playback and we come to see and come to think about the series as a whole, at least the series as we've read it. Um, So why don't we just do that, buddy? Why don't we just segue now onto the plot summary? And uh, if our listeners are familiar with the story, then they can fast forward about 13, 14 minutes and catch us on the other side.
1: They can, but I don't recommend it. I mean, after the long <laughs> goodbye one and the previous one before, as I said, you know, I think you're in for a treat. And and, and, and I think it will at least, I, I think, evoke the mood of Marlowe, of, of Chandler's writing style, of the world that he's trying to create and set. I think he'll evoke that for you. You know, I I think the summary is a great preamble to our pipes, our breakdown of the story.
0: All right. Well, here we go. And so we've arrived. The final full-length Marlowe adventure. The story takes place some 18 months following the events in the long goodbye and Marlowe is still working but feeling more jaded than ever. The motivator for this case comes in the form of a phone call from a supposed to be famous lawyer Clyde Umney. I say supposed to be because he name drops himself quite heavily in an effort to get Marlowe to pay attention. Omni's been hired by some powerful parties in the East to track down and keep tabs on a woman, Eleanor King, who's nearing 30 and on the run from something. Omni intends to use Chandler to get the job done. Like the identity of the client behind him, however, the reason for pursuing Miss King isn't shared with Marlowe by Omni at first. Not surprisingly, this irritates and compels Marlowe in equal measure. Marlowe agrees, but refuses to let himself be pushed around by Mr. Clyde Omni or his attractive secretary, Miss Vermilier, who gives as good as she gets when Marlowe meets her to receive some documents and get started. Keep this scene in your minds, reader, for their rude and raunchy business meeting promises a future. Anyway, Marlowe doesn't struggle to pick up Eleanor King at the train station, but he is struck by her movements there, Instead of a woman on the run, she looks to be deliberately paused out in the open, as if waiting for a party to arrive. From his vantage, Marlowe sees a big, dapper California man, identified as such from his preppy clothes and shoes, who meets with Eleanor in a cafe and holds court. Clearly, this man possesses some bargaining chip over her and seems poised to play it. He's a smarmy sort of guy, and Marlowe takes an immediate dislike to him, a feeling emboldened Further, when he spots the man's sleek two-tone Buick Roadmaster, those conditioned to Marlowe's penchant for following his nose and instinct won't be surprised by how quickly he and Chandler start putting together a hunch-led narrative of Eleanor King perhaps being framed. At the very least, Marlowe's pretty sure that his pushy client Clyde Omni and the anonymous party behind him back east are now going to be on the very deliberate and appraising drip feed of information from the Marlowe judgment machine. Its parts are growing old and more nihilistic by the case, but, true to form after all their career miles, they're still morally upstanding and greased with compassion. Marlowe's intrigued and itching to know more. Plus, he's still technically on the right side of his client, even if he's already decided to play his own game a little bit so he follows Eleanor to the El Rancho Descansado in Esmeralda, California. He gets a room adjacent to Eleanor through the help of the two lovebird attendants, with whom he has a nice rapport at occasional points throughout this novel. Marlowe also discovers the name of the man who met with Eleanor at the station, Larry Mitchell, as he's still active with her in Esmeralda. Though we don't know much about this Mitchell yet, it's pretty clear that he's blackmailing Eleanor somehow, and he's not liked much by the staff, even if, as Chandler writes, quote, he is a pal of the owner. Moreover, Eleanor King is actually Betty Mayfield, well, for now at least, and has been traveling under a fake name. While that little point isn't too surprising for a woman on the lam, it does motivate Marlowe's next steps using a doctor's stethoscope to eavesdrop on a conversation in the next room between the aforementioned betty mayfield on the run from something and larry mitchell sleazy blackmailing preppy the dislike that betty showed for mitchell at the station is amplified here in this conversation that we overhear and she bitterly accepts his instructions to be ready for dinner at 7 30. mitchell leaves and Marlowe makes his next move to the door using that old cup of sugar trick which soon results, after proper introductions, to Marlowe taking Betty to bed in a scene which can only be described as the most awkward and forcibly unconsenting of the entire Marlowe sweep. It's an odd and out of character moment for our normally respectable detective. Post coitus, Betty transfers to the Casa del Poniente and Marlowe travels to dinner incognito and watches her from a distance as Mitchell gets progressively more and more drunk before Betty is saved from the scene by a bigwig, Clark Brandon, a man who owns a lot of property and sway around Esmeralda. Marlowe returns to the hotel and to bed. To bed. Sweet sleep. If you can find it. But it's not to be, friends, cause Betty comes knocking in a stupor and ropes Marlowe into helping her remove a body from her balcony. She offers him $5,000 to help but he's not interested in getting paid. He wants to know why and what else is going on. Only thing, after a lot of to-ing and froing, there is no body there on Betty's balcony at the Casa del Poniente. Somebody removed it, and Marlowe was left wondering how deeply and dangerously involved he's become with Betty Mayfield, this woman about whom he still knows very little. Nevertheless, getting neither truth nor trust from Clyde Umney when he calls in to give a filtered status update and calls BS on the lawyer's story fed to him by Washington about Betty taking some valuable papers from a boss. And you know by midway through the book even though we're not decided as readers on Betty we know enough about Marlowe's hunches to suspect that he's in the right by operating rogue and believing in Betty more than her pursuers. For all of that though Marlowe does tell Omni where Betty is, and he returns home to L.A. At this point, Miss Vermilier, the secretarial figure from Omni's office, re-enters the story, as promised, and she and Marlowe enjoy a flavoured but ultimately ephemeral tryst for a couple of chapters that ends without much impact, and seems about as forgettably libidinous as anything from the Marlowe Sweep that reinforces a reading of playback as a very impersonal, playing-for-the-pulp kind of tale, while Vermilie is fun to read and somewhat refreshing in her ability to flip the script on the misogyny while still being part of its dynamic the scenes are ultimately filler and not really the sort that progress the story it's just sex between two humans that doesn't really impact the story apart from making Marlowe seem a little more of a dog than he normally does despite not needing to anymore Marlowe returns to esmeralda to pursue betty following his tryst with Vermilie. At this final point along the character's sweep, to ask why he does these things, is to ignore his principal itch as a character, knowing that something just isn't right. Marlowe's never taken a pay and left cards on the table, and there are still too many questions here. The knight still has business with the dragon, even if that dragon is difficult to see and judge. It's out there, and he's pretty sure it's after Betty Mayfield. There's always a moment in Marlowe's adventures where curiosity, and his nose for goodness, takes over, and this is it. Ignoring common sense, he returns to the Casa del Punante and questions Betty a little more on Mitchell, the disappearing body, and what trouble she's in. But he doesn't get very far, because Ross Goebel, a Kansas City detective, enters the scene and spooks Betty further into herself. The inevitable meeting between Gobel and Marlowe occurs immediately after this at a restaurant called the Epicure. Gobel wastes little time in accusing Marlowe of killing Mitchell and bedding Betty, playing his cheap entitled bluffs the entire time over drinks. He wants to know everything there is to know about Marlowe and his involvement. Marlowe is more than a little worried by Gobel and the knowledge that he possesses, but he works hard not to show it. Instead. He focuses on Goebbels' manners and his rudeness and concentrates his energies on playing down goebel's threats for the most part it works and ultimately Goebbel is written out of the story as an ephemeral threat well things progress pretty swiftly from here the parking lot attendant at the casa del ponente is a pothead in fact he's an everything head and is hanging on to his job by a shoestring but he tells Marlowe, who earns his trust by posing as a fellow druggie that Mitchell has left with all of his luggage earlier in the morning. He tells Marlowe to come visit him sometime. Marlowe then digs around the hotel staff for information, overhearing a brief conversation with owner and big man Clark Brandon in the lobby. The poniente's head of security comes around to deal with Marlowe soon after, and this man, Javanen, was an ex-military intelligence operative, and gives Marlowe very little quarter, let alone information, on Mitchell. Our hero does better, however, when he sits next to Henry Clarendon IV, an old-timer whose hobby it is to spy on and appraise the hotel comers and goers. He's a permanent fixture there, or so it would seem, and he plays a very couth and respectable social role at the hotel, watching the card games and transactions in the lobby. Retired from whatever he used to do, Clarendon IV now sits out the twilight of his life from within the well-dressed comforts of the hotel bar. As such, he's collected a lot of information over the years, and deduced a whole lot more. Marlowe learns from this old man that Mitchell is much more than just a blackmailer of Betty, perhaps. He's a career blackmailer, having taken advantage of many women. Chandler uses Clarendon as a mouthpiece, we feel, to philosophize on some of his own worldviews. But their conversation, if you can call it that, comes to an end when Betty Mayfield herself shows up. Marlowe intercepts her in the bar and makes formal his employment by getting her to sign over a small retainer in traveler's checks. This safeguarding is necessary in order for Marlow to continue on this way without getting in too much trouble should things turn pear-shaped with the law. We've seen him do this before, like in The Little Sister, so we know what he's up to. Before leaving the hotel, Marlowe spots Gobel across the lobby and knows that Betty's time might be running out, as at least one wolf has caught up with her in real time. Plus, with the mystery of Mitchell's disappearing body still hovering about, well, anything could happen. Keeping his promise to visit, but heading really to acquire more knowledge, Marlowe does call on the parking lot attendant at home, but finds him dead, conceivably so by his own hand, drugged on morphine sulfate and hung from his outhouse latrine. This discovery leads him to the cops, where he meets with Captain Alessandro, and for the first time in a long, long time, He's trusted, and given a fair shake as private detective. Marlowe and the readers are equally amazed, as Merelda really is a long way from Los Angeles. Alessandro informs Marlowe that Mitchell's car had been discovered 20 miles away in Los Panasquitos Canyon by a rancher, but no sign of Mitchell. Missing, presumed dead, but by who? Well, the story now speeds to its conclusion, with Marlowe returning to the hotel to find a sadistic redhead in his room putting the old beaten squeeze on Gobel. Why? Well, that soon comes out. He was hired by Clark Brandon to take pressure off of Betty, who, of course, he'd fallen for. Marlowe uses a tire iron to suppress the red-headed heavy, whose name is Richard Harvest, for what it's worth, and the cops do the rest when they arrive. Next stop, Clark Brandon's room, early doors. Brandon omits Marlowe and answers his questions, and even shows him how, hypothetically, Mitchell might have fallen off that balcony, had he, hypothetically, made any advances on Betty in the company of himself, hypothetically. Marlowe then tears a page out of Sherlock Holmes's book and deduces the details of the disappearance of Mitchell right down to the propeller blades on the chopper that Brandon used in carrying Mitchell offshore for his burial at sea. It seems no one regrets killing Mitchell. Marlowe knows that he can't swing in the big hoodlum leagues with Brandon, but sort of respects his own moral code, even if it does stretch outside the law. Well, the final piece in the puzzle is put into place with the arrival of Mr. Henry Kinsolving in the UK edition from North Carolina, whose son was once married to Betty and who died in her presence. In fact, Betty was charged and convicted by jury of his murder, but was let free by a senile judge who voided the verdict. Kinsolving has it out for Betty and promised to chase her to Earth's end and haunt her living days sort of universal monster style. Well, he's gonna have trouble now that Betty's friendly and thick with Brandon's milk. But Playback has one final surprise in store. And if you're a shipper, it's a fabulous one. In fact, even if you're not a romantic, the reappearance of Linda Loring will put a smile on your face. That's right, Linda calls at the end of the novel from Paris. And wouldn't you know it, she just can't live without Marlowe. And wouldn't he like to come to Paris? No? Well, why don't I come back to you? Yes, that'll do? Oh, Marlowe, you dog, you make me so happy, and, and, well, all the rest is music. So, a happy ending. And for once, Marlowe gets the girl.
1: Like I said, you did a bang-up job, my friend. And uh, once again, I hope that you know when, when we go into our uh, further mystery novels, different authors and different stories. I hope to see that kind of plot summary will pop up every now and then. You know,
0: let's light our pipes then Josh on our final Raymond Chandler novel of this season. All right. So, principles: investigation, perpetrator, environs, and secondary or supporting characters. These what are the spell? categories. It call it spells pipes. And these, these are the these are the categories we're going to rank out of five, uh, as we've been doing since the beginning of time. It feels and it, it really works for us and for our breakdown of our stories, as Josh says. So so let's get into it. Let's start then with the perpetrators of playback. Sorry, the principal and the, the principal, principal playback. how did you find him here, buddy? Had you do you like him? You not like him? What do you got?
1: So. I wavered between, and I'm going right for the numbers here in this particular case.
0: Okay, fire up. I
1: wavered, I wavered between a three and a half and a four. Okay. But in the end, I'm going to go for a four because oh, okay. I feel that the first half of the novel was basically, it was almost Marlowe on autopilot. Uh, mm-hmm. And the second half was getting closer to the Marlowe that we know from the previous novels. Like, mm-hmm. it felt like half the novel was trying, was trying to, re, kind of was almost like a reboot. Or at least kind of like a one-off story, but then halfway through, that you know that history starts coming up again, you know, and and you know, and you have the return of, of course, of uh, Linda Loring uh, at the very end, and it kind of completes the Marlowe sweep in 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 our terms, anyways. And so I feel that uh, you know he was the same character uh, in most uh, in most cases. Uh, I'm going to give I'm going to drop points though, definitely for. Playback, aka where Ray- Raymond Chandler lives vicariously through Philip Marlowe, because as I mentioned in the in the in the bio there, I mean there were so many women in his life and and he wanted to sleep with them like a lot of mm-hmm. them like or mm-hmm. and he, believed he and he believed he was courting them in his own way and that's what Marlowe does in this book he sleeps with almost every woman in this book which is what mm-hmm. we never seen before and I found that's that right. a little bit out of out of character in my opinion like perhaps you could argue that you know. The, the ending with lore with with Linda Loring at the end of uh, the long goodbye, you know, kind of maybe made him really want that more and more. And he's looking for that human connection, and he's not as as a prude or at least as a uh, he's not as of, of a puritan in his mindset as he used to be compared to the days of Carmen Sternwood when he tears up his pillow and mm-hmm. and all that. And so while you know while Betty Mayfield or Eleanor King or you know her, whatever, whoever she was the beginning she was just a target uh, like uh, a mark for him you know to get the job done and then all of a sudden like it was at a character i think uh, with his relationship with her like he never did that with a client before i got that with miss vermilia you know like that relationship made a lot more sense because marlo might have had some sexual feelings towards mayfield i could believe that 100 percent, and maybe he was just you know sublimating them through miss vermilia Mm -hmm. uh And I did like the refreshing Miss Vermilia, you know, like, she wasn't really, she was just a secretary, she was professional, she did her job, she just wanted a brief fling with Marlowe, and that was it. And, you know, like, there wasn't really, as you pointed out, a lot of misogyny in that, it was almost almost a very kind of modern, and maybe Raymond Chandler, you know, he's going into the late 50s now, when he's writing this, you know, he wrote this in 1958, or published in 1958 anyway, maybe he just felt that... um, it was a sign of the times, you know, like, mm-hmm, definitely, mm-hmm. You, can, you can feel the gaps be- in terms of the historical changes, cultural changes, in terms of feminism, uh, how women are treated uh, by men at this time have definitely changed compared to when he was writing in the late 30s and 40s.
0: Yes, there's certainly a marked difference there. And I did appreciate the freshness of that. I did like how Vermilier was, was kind of approaching Marlowe and taking Marlowe and kind of giving back to Marlowe the same you know the the same banter the same sort of tease that that he was offering and i also like that she shows up at his apartment or at his home and then turns things and they go back to hers i like that as well yeah it's he he was in control
1: of the situation like That's he, right, you, know, you yeah. come back to my place so therefore it's 100% in, like implicit that you know, like this is what it is. You're coming to my house. You're coming. You know. You You know, you, you know what I mean? You are there for me, and mm-hmm. you're going to give me pleasure. This isn't about you taking what you want compared That's to right. the scene, you know, earlier with Eleanor and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. it's very different in that fashion. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I also and want to put him. She puts his ass in a cab as well and sends him home, which I like that too
1: yeah, that's definitely nice. That's definitely a change. And I could see maybe, so, I, I could see Chandler, the influence of all like these very strong female characters. uh, individuals, you know, I was gonna say strong characters, but they were actually real people like Natasha Spender and, yep. uh, Helga, and like Helga Green and, uh, and, uh, others as well, and the, and the literary circle that he was part of in London, with, with very upstanding socialite women and whatnot, that, you know, this was the emergence of feminism, and and they were putting up with the kind of ideas that he was kind of, that mindset that he was still in, probably even when he was writing playback and, and before, you know, like, it was a different mindset, and I think Chandler was coming his way with it, I, and I think he kind of Liked it. I think deep down he might have liked it and preferred it. And mm-hmm. you even see him being like sympathetic to like even other things to to other aspects. I mean, we always have Chandler's racism, you know, just to, to pick apart in his novels. Mm-hmm. But you know, I found his portrayal of like even though like he portrayed you know this uh, parking lot attendant right, uh, and even though he portrays him being on being on drugs, you know, which is kind of stereotypical but when he goes back to his home as he's a squalor that he's living in and then the, the, that he hanged himself, you know, and I think of of Raven Chandler's own suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. He, just, there, was a, there was like this thing of sympathy that I felt in the story that Marlowe believably had for this man that maybe he's just grown as a person over time. So mm-hmm. I did like that as well. And consistent with Marlowe and his character, I also give points to, you know, that sequence when he's sitting in the hotel and he's waiting uh, for... Uh, Eleanor to show up. I guess I should call her Betty Mayfield because I mean that's really her character's name.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But w- when he speaks to the old rich man Clarendon, they have like this philosophical discussion, and it reminded me a lot of his talks with General Sternwood. You know what I mean? And, oh yeah. Or even like uh, with Potter, for example. Harlan it Potter, just reminded man. Harlan Potter. Yeah, uh, Linda's fa- father. Um, it just reminded me that you know Marlowe does have a respect for these older gentlemen and stuff, and and he can tell, and he's a good judge of character about who, who these men are, and he accepts their philosophical points that they make, and and the life experiences that they had. So you could tell that Marlowe was taking this in. But then you have another older gentleman, you know, uh, Kinsolving in the UK edition, or Sutherland, uh, or Cumberland in the Cumberland, uh, sorry, Cumberland in, in the American edition. You could just tell that Marlowe knew. Not just by his actions, but that Cumberland was a man you don't respect, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Despite yeah. him being like a powerful figure in the small town that he's part of, Marlo can see right through that sort of pretense, I guess you could yeah. say. I bring them up only, Scott, because because mm-hmm. they had interactions with Marlo that I think affected him in, throughout the story. And I just think it kind of showed his character and who he was. So in terms of Marlowe as a, as the principal, I think those 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 points. Even though yes, we can talk about them in the secondary characters, I still feel that they were important to him as development as a character and how I viewed him as a character in okay. the story, which to me is integral to the uh, rating of the
0: principal. Fair enough.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the first half really disappointed me, so I think three and a half might just be my final on that. Like there there was a lot more development I I I would have preferred, and while like the latter half of the book did satisfy me. Uh, and I understand, you know, where he was in his life, where Chandler wrote the story the way that he did and not as good as he did the others. It just mm-hmm. makes sense, you know, that the book turned out this way. So I can forgive that. But, mm-hmm. you know, on, on a purely, uh, how can you how can you say it? Uh, on, on a purely uh, structural and objective base, I think three and a half is a fair review.
0: Okay, right. Well, I didn't go that high. Um, I, I agree mm-hmm. with everything you're saying, by the way. Uh, but I really did find the the kind of lustfulness which kind of drives Marlowe in this story. I found it interesting, but I, I did find it a little bit out of character, given that he's been in tighter situations than this, and he still hasn't lost that sense of nobility, that sort of moral compass. Which And, and that there is enough of that moral compass here to make it, as you said, Josh, Marlowe's story, to make the character still very much alive. But I do find that the blemishes on his record in this story by taking advantage of Betty and her situation, and let's face it, he does take advantage of her, uh, um, she she might have consented to sex with him anyway, but he just kind of grabs her and kisses her, you know. And um, that that's not like something we've really seen before. Marlowe has been on the receiving end of the of female advances, or he has talked and worked enough with a woman or client or whatever to to kind of get there. But in this story, knowing that she is at this stage being preyed on or trying to followed by other parties, he he does this and I, I was trying to look at it from different points of view like is he doing this because he needs to earn her trust and, and feel like he's protecting her so that she'll believe in him I don't see that development there I just see this being like a you're a woman I know I can get something from you and um, yeah this might be good for us both but um it certainly wasn't done out of any sort of chivalric bent mm-hmm. or motive and I think that that then following up with that that episode with Vermilier which on its own wouldn't have bothered me at all because you know that to and fro that sort of simpatico was there uh, you know that was fine but I just didn't think he needed to sleep with Betty particularly as or Eleanor at that point whatever particularly as uh she you know she's not going to be with him at the end of the story and it just sort of muddied the waters a little bit for me didn't sit right with me from what we've seen of Marlo in the past and it did, did take me out of it. it it didn't fail him for me as a character, there's still enough of them in there, but I went 2.5 and of all the Marlowe stories, I did find that this was the one where the principal and his agency was was just a little bit skewered for me.
1: Okay. No, I I, I agree with you on that. And uh I didn't think it was a deterrent as much as for me as it was for you sure, in terms of yeah. my rating. Yeah. But I keep thinking, you know, This story, when it came out, would this have been, would we have been looking at this story, I guess, from the, from the context that we, that we were, if we we were living at that time, would we have seen this as more of a harsher situation? Or is this something just that men do with women, you know, Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. in those days? I think we are viewing it from a modern day perspective, right? You're absolutely right. I keep thinking, you know, we talked about, you know, on, on our Bond show about Sean Connery and Goldfinger or in Thunderball, mm-hmm. or for example, like another one I was watching recently was Blade Runner and a scene where a bit, where, uh, where Harrison Ford's character almost essentially takes Sean Young's character, uh, who was almost infantilized in, in, in the storyline, uh-huh. uh, which is something I just noticed recently and, and kind of disturbed me a, a, a little bit as well, um, it just kind of reminded me, you know, that we are looking at it through a modern day lens. And mm-hmm. so I was trying to be objective with it at the same time of like the context it was written in. And like, but now after reading, you know, but the biography on Chandler after finishing playback, I can see in a way that this was Chandler because of the lusts and the feelings and emotions he was having at this time of his life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I can kind of feel that he could have blurred the line there and he could have just not really... It could have been deaf and dumb, I guess. I guess you could say, or oblivious yeah. mm-hmm. to to what he was doing there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. However, I do know what you mean. It, it, com- it comes out on the printed page as as it does, and we have mm-hmm. to judge judge it as that. So I agree with your assessment, and uh, I'm not going to change my my rating of it. I've always loved the character of Marlowe through all the novels. I've and I've gave you know mostly he always gets a four plus for me all the time. Mm-hmm. So you know I'm bringing it down a little bit here, mm-hmm. and uh, and point. that's one of the reasons why because I was it was the first half, but. I guess as you know, I was very happy with the ending and I can see in a situation where like his character kind of maybe took a downfall after the long goodbye because he lost his best friend or if someone he thought was mm-hmm. a good friend at the end of that story. Uh, that it was a relationship, that it wasn't what wasn't what he thought it was, it was all a lie mm-hmm. in, in how it was built up. And then Linda leaving him and, and you know and, and all that sort of stuff all building up. And I just think maybe this was just him just saying like I just want this right now. I want this now. Mm-hmm. And, and he had and he wanted to keep Betty Mayfield, who was very resistant to him from the very beginning. He wanted to protect her more and more, but maybe he felt that he went to, had to go that far just to secure her confidence in him. That was the only way he could do it. And it was mm-hmm. a desperate uh, kind of an asshole move. And, you know, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. But I, I can see the deeper writing behind it, but at the same time, I can also see, you know, uh, the obliviousness uh uh, uh, i guess you could say the blind the cultural blindness of the situation as well
0: well let's let's just josh as podcast hosts because you know let's let's be honest here it's not for us to judge um Mm -hmm. just let's just put it out there okay this this is a scene that we're talking about we'll just briefly summarize it here off the page well what do you know she drawled a dick with scruples tell it to the seagulls buster "'On me, it's just confetti. "'Run along now, Mr. P.I. Marlowe, "'and make that little old phone call you're so anxious about. "'I'm not restraining you.' "'She started for the door, but I caught her by the wrist "'and spun her around. "'The torn blouse didn't reveal any startling nakedness, "'merely some skin and part of a brazier. "'You'd see more on the beach, far more, "'but you wouldn't see it through a torn blouse. "'I must have been leering a little "'because she suddenly curled her fingers and tried to claw me. "'I'm no bitch in heat,' she said between tight teeth. Take your paws off me. I got the other wrist and started to pull her closer. She tried to knee me in the groin, but she was already too close. Then she went limp and pulled her head back and closed her eyes. Her lips opened with a sardonic twist to them. It was a cool evening, maybe even cold down by the water, but it wasn't cold where I was. After a while, she said with a sighing voice that she had to dress for dinner. So, she she resists, and this is one of those really uncomfortable moments in stories and you don't just get them here. This is the first time we've seen it with Marlowe, but you know, no means yes. It's really tough to stomach this one. And I don't care that I like the character. I do like the character, but I, I think I'm interested in digging deep on his motive here, but I find it really difficult to justify the action when she has tried to physically, you know, defend herself from him and doesn't, Act the way that um, Mm -hmm. doesn't act the way that uh, Eileen Wade did with him in the long goodbye. She doesn't want him to do this. But when he forces her physically, she does submit to him. And maybe... Yeah, fine. You could say maybe she was playing hard to get, but then there's a line that's crossed here, I think, that uh, that that is I'm well, aware
1: I'm aware of the, aware of the yeah. line, man. I'm 100 I'm 100% aware of the <laughs> yeah. line. But see, I'm trying to cuz one thing I always had a conversation about, mm-hmm. you know, about old films with people and everything like that and and it always comes into arguments more and more where I get with people is about like I mean, you want to appreciate the film, you want to appreciate the artistry or yes, you, you want do. to appreciate the book and its mm-hmm. story, but you know, there's a lot of people who still look at it from a, a modern perspective. But like, and I, I and I understand that, and I completely understand it, and I'm sympathetic to it, you know what I mean? But like, I feel like sometimes, you know, just when you try to defend something that was a, a time period where, like, are we supposed yeah, to you're, simply, you're, like You're going to lose burn, are, are, we, yeah. are, we, are we supposed to burn all this down and just forget about it? Like, of course
0: not, no, no.
1: I, I, I just like, I get caught between, you know, like, you know, should I give this 2.5 or 1.5 because of something like that, you know? But exactly. in terms of how yeah. the story is done, yeah. like, I just feel pressured that, like, what do I need to do here? I mean, mm-hmm. is the, is the fact that I'm asking the question, am I wrong to ask the question in the first place? Like,
0: No, I think, I think I, what you're doing is you're doing exactly what literary scholars need to do when they approach a text. Like, you give the text credit for the context in which it was written, and... Um, what I what I'm doing I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say you've made a mistake or anybody who defends Chandler is writing here makes a mistake. Um, I'm just saying that what what we're engaging with, I think, is what all contemporary readers engage with. You want to like something, you do like something, I like this thing as well. But how much how much can we give? I mean ultimately you and I and the listeners know, Josh, that our five points five point is just an arbitrary scoring index for us, right? Mm-hmm. Like the bigger yes. the, the bigger cultural point here is that we know that this is a wrongful behavior. We know that Marlowe is not acting properly here he's not acting lawfully here he's not acting respectfully here and maybe you could read the second half of the story his determination to defend and to safeguard betty you could then look at that as a redemption you know if you wanted to you could see both sides of the coin here and that's that's fine too but uh, no, no no I, I don't think you have to um, be too hard on yourself for viewing it as it is um yeah i think in the end
1: If you find yourself defending, you know, something like something like this or because of the context that it takes place in and you're with an audience that's not agreeing with you on that and you're probably with the wrong audience talking about this
0: stuff. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah.
1: And in and in the end, I mean, look what you got to look at what they're reading or what they're writing about, and what they talk about, and and what they're doing. So you also got to be you know not oblivious to you know the people you have these conversations with as well. You know what I mean? Ah, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. right. I mean, that, I mean, I mean, that's why like literary scholars and stuff are their own little circle of stuff. But mm-hmm. at the same time, this also creates sort of like almost like I don't want to use the term incel, but it creates sort of like an exclusive sort of circle. Uh, but it's also an echo chamber as well that you want to avoid. On top of yeah. that.
0: That's right. And this is why I think your earlier points, the bio points about Chandler, where he was in his life and how the character writing reflects his own behavior, is is very much uh, an important point here for this story, particularly, because Marlowe has never done this in the past. He's always defended and he's always fought for the rights of you know, all of his clients unless they've proven themselves guilty or kind of, you know, betrayed yeah. or whatever. And he's treated women rough but he's never really abused them as he does here. Yeah. So this he, is he kisses
1: them hard sometimes and, you know, even that was kind of like, oh, okay, well that's a mm-hmm. bit rough. But mm-hmm. then you know like, you have a situation like this, you know, and I completely see that. Because the way she talks to him obviously goaded him hundred percent and it, sure. like it, she enraged him you know and how you know her resistance and she was resistant first verbally and then physically with a knee mm-hmm. in the groin but mm-hmm. then she has a sardonic smile as if the writer is saying okay so she was fighting a bit but now she's yeah, getting into it yeah that, and that's yeah. kind of the mindset like is this is this her playing hard to get does she want to see how far she can push him to see how much yeah. he t- is she testing him on mm-hmm. like is this guy actually into me or is, he just, or, or is he just someone who's trying to use me, right? Mm-hmm. So she's testing him on that basis. You could argue that. But at the same time, you can also argue the other direction as well. So there is an ambiguity there. You know, we might not want to admit it, but there is maybe an ambiguity between the pages there. I mean, there's even an amb- ambiguity, you know, that they may not have even slept together just on the, on the basis, you know, of of like the time lapse, I guess you could say that mm. he includes there. Although I think that is not very debatable at all. But I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I,
0: that's less debatable.
1: But yeah, but I'm just, but yeah, I'm just saying, you know, mm. that yeah. uh, because he doesn't go into into detail about it like he does with like Rumelia and whatnot, right? Like that was like a playful sexual tryst. So it was so clearly mm-hmm. written that way that it's almost titillating on how Chandler wrote it. Like he's writing like some sort of like, like a letter to the penthouse or something like that, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. just, just how he conceives it, like in a high class, like naughty nineties magazine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh,
0: Well, maybe we're supposed to see then in the second half of the story, and I guess the bridging part in the middle here as well, that his decision to go back to the hotel when he doesn't need to, his decision to go back to the Poniente and kind of inquire further and engage more with Betty, maybe that is his way of recognizing quietly to himself and Chandler maybe as writer. I treated this girl incorrectly and I need to see this through because at the end of the day, he does know that she's being followed, chased and potentially framed. So he wants to, he wants to do right by her. And, you know, I'd like to think that, and I'm sure you would too, that Marlowe went home and reflected on his behavior and, and is back out there now doing what he's doing in the way he does it because that's the right damn thing to do. That's a good point. That's Uh, a very good point.
1: And I I think it supports the scene. I mean, I don't know if that Mm -hmm. was the full Mm -hmm. intention, but you can, you know, it's it's art. People can read into it, you know, what they want and they can come up with their own motivations or ulterior motives for things. But but I I can definitely see that playing out that way. Absolutely. Him being motivated by a sense of redemption, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. for how he treated her earlier on in, in the story.
0: Yeah, well, why don't we ask our listeners what you know? Let let us know what you think of this scene. Does it, you know, does does it ruin the story for you, uh, or or do you see this as a believable point to narrative out with Chandler's own personal situation? Um, yeah, because it, it's an interesting one, and we, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it the way we are.
1: Yeah, that scene was very ambiguous to me. I guess on how it read and how it was, was portrayed, like. I just think it goes to show, you know, how like in this particular writing style and world, how you get immersed into it, that you're not picking up on these contexts sometimes. So Mm -hmm. I feel, you know, I'm going to go to a three for my final for principles. It's not through any pressure, you know, from your opinion or from worry about, you know, uh, other circumstances. It's just a matter of, you know, I think, you know, you provide, provide me a convincing argument that three and a half might even be too generous, you know, for the portrayal of Marlowe, particularly in the first half of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Half, like, yeah. even, though, like, yeah. even though the first half was much improved in terms of his characterization. Um, yeah, there's definitely some uh, blemishes, as you said, in the first half of the novel. So let's go with the three and you, uh, on my side and then on your end there, you'll have your
0: 2.5. Okay, well, let, let's move away then from Marlowe and talk about the investigation. For me, there are some of the hallmarks of the good stories here in playback, like Marlowe flipping the script on his client and then turning yes. the prey into the protected. I, I always like that, and, and he does it well. And as I said in my plot summary, that scene where he gets Betty to sign over the traveler's check as a retainer and put the rest away, that's very similar to what he did in The Little Sister, right? Where he he started yes. to to kind of make sure that, um, that he had a job with the client as such. And I, I really like that. Um, maybe, Josh, because this story story started sharper and more quickly like in media res so to speak maybe i found this one a little less developed as a full narrative and certainly it is shorter we don't have any office scenes it is odd not to have a scene with marlo in his office yes. calling any of there was the shots. no like
1: a stab there was no establishing sequence mm-hmm. like what marlo was up to at that time like that's right he just in media res he's on the case and, th- and yeah, that's how yeah. he starts it it's and very that- different from what we had before and that could have been refreshing mm-hmm. but to me it just felt like Chandler just wanted just to get into the story right like Maybe he was struggling with his drinking and he was just wanted to get into the story and that was the best way that he could do it. And then mm-hmm. finally, his story started opening up for him as he wrote. And yeah, uh, that's yeah. how he feel this This novel went along because I find in the last half of the novel, we are getting essentially uh, the story opening up. Everything is starting to connect and, and, and make sense, but it also feels a little convoluted at the same time, more so yeah. than usual.
0: Totally. Yeah, I agree. And it, it does help to make a refreshing start and a refreshing sort of story. The fact that we don't have any home turf calls, the fact that there are no office scenes. And it gives me the feeling of, of almost like a, what, what a standalone episode might be like in a series on Marlowe, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, there is that yes. sort of feeling to it, um, like a different sort of director came in and, and took the Marlowe character and went and did something with them you know Um, yeah but yeah I I, I didn't like it as much I found it a bit rushed and the second half was a little bit more developed I think than the first but ultimately for me the investigation was just passable plus I went for a three overall Uh, I never found it too tricky to follow there are some strange moments of kind of uh, Sherlock Holmes deduction at the end that sort of wrap things up quickly, but you know, I, you've really got to care about the characters, I think, to give a super high mark for investigation, and I just didn't really care much about the characters in here, at least not the ones that we get most time with. So I went for a three, which which means I guess if you're picking up the story, you'll enjoy it, but you might not. At least through my lens, you you might not think of this as like, yeah, this was Marlowe at his best. Tons of action, tons of excitement. Nah, not really, man. This is this is a soft pillow. This is a soft pillow for me.
1: Yeah, uh, soft pillow is a good term for it, uh, because really, it's not until the end of the novel where you know you have a big smile on your face when you're finishing it, and you're like yeah you know like it's a, it's a fist pump moment and then that's it and uh, yeah. that's basically the, the, the it's like play for playback to me it was more like pay off because that yeah, was the end yeah. of the was it was the end of the novel when linda
0: calls him mm-hmm. and yes yeah, it's, it's almost like we, we read the 150 pages to get what we wanted at the very very end of the long goodbye yeah.
1: basically filler un, until then essentially
0: the long that's is, is what it was we could call this the long, one, tease. The long tease. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely Right. Well, what did you go for, for your investigation?
1: Uh, I went for a three, as you, you were,
0: did. You were at a three as well. Anything different you wanted to add or additional to what I said?
1: Well, going back what we talked about in the principles, I liked how, the, the I liked the in media res opening for a little bit. It was very different from what I had before. I mean, I didn't miss the establishing, because that to me always was the beginning of my immersion to the story, and... I wanted Chandler to talk about Los Angeles or whats you know what street he was on or mm-hmm, is he at his apartment or is he or is he, is he still at that house or is mm-hmm. or is he uh at his apartment now or is he at his office? I kind of just wanted this an establishing you know, what he was doing in his life at that time, but we just go right into it, so we don't really get that pick up until halfway through you know, and uh That's right, yeah. So I'm just, I'm kind of just on the edge – I'm not on the edge of my seat per se, but I'm just a little bit antsy going through this, going like, okay, so when does this story develop? Because I feel like there's almost a storyline that I should know about, even though it's not really happening yet. Mm-hmm. So I always felt I was kind of like left out a little bit, and my immersion wasn't – I wasn't allowed to immerse myself as much as I wanted to. And because I kept wondering, you know, I, you know, I was just – it's like, is this going to go to a good direction? Is this, mm-hmm. is this going to go in a good direction into a satisfying direction? Is this going to develop into a bigger story? Or are we just going to get a very tropey, uh, kind of the, the the mystery novel that Chandler was so uh, adamant about not writing? You know, mm-hmm. that's what the first mm-hmm. half of the novel is, is almost to me. Like, it's very much like a, a Sam Spade story. Or uh, even in terms of, you know, we're talking about the scene, you know, with uh uh, with Betty Mayfield, in, you know, when we're talking about the principles, even almost like a Mickey Spillane direction as well, like very pulpy, you know what mm-hmm. I mean?
0: Yeah, very pulpy. And th- this is, I think, maybe its length has something to do with that. Maybe its settings, you know, the sort of temporariness of hotels and stuff, maybe that has something to do with it, the seediness of, of guys like Larry Mitchell. But this does feel like the most pulpy of all the Chandler stories that we've read to date.
1: It it does. You mentioned the point you mentioned about, you know, like where there's a lot of train stations, there's a lot of bus stations, there's a lot of taxi stands, there's a lot of hotel lobbies it's almost like everything is in transit and everything is, like nothing is slowed down for Marlowe and he's always on the move, always going from one place to the other, but he can't find a connection, some, you know, he can't find yeah. the connection he's looking for, even with the women in the story until, you know, he gets that phone call at the very end.
0: So maybe right, that was yeah.
1: deliberate on Chandler's part and, you know, maybe the three points is at least worth that in terms yeah, of good what he was trying to ki- try, trying to convey there.
0: Yeah, just trying to give his reader something a little bit different. Yeah, no chess scenes, no opportunities to reflect and catch his breath and try to kind of put put it together sure yeah. Yeah. yeah i'll go with that yeah
1: like yeah like his i i think he i think he checkmated himself you know with that relationship with linda mm. and i i think there was no more game to play and he was just going by it was going through the motions i suppose you could say uh, and that even makes the title playback even more significant cuz such a bland sort of when I read the book, t- that's what's called Playback. I'm like, was this book written like in 1989 or something? Like, mm-hmm. it just was it just a very weird title for a uh, a mystery novel. It's just so modern and electronic sounding that it just it just didn't fit, you know, with like Farewell, My Lovely or The Little yeah, Sister yeah, or yeah. The yeah. Big Sleep, you know, like play, Playback. Like, I was just picturing Marlo, like, I don't know, having an iPod in his hand or something like that. <laughs> so... so,
0: so, so, so yeah, like what would he be it, listening it just, to? What would he be listening
1: to? <laughs> that's a good question. I have.
0: Uh, we'll maybe talk about big, that on a. He, like, he likes episode. some.
1: He likes like he likes like some. He likes lounge music. I'm from what I'm from what I'm assuming.
0: Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He could be right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, no, I, I mean, you make good points, buddy. You make good points. Well, look, I think we're seeing eye to eye on the investigation. Let's talk about the perpetrators. Mm. Let's talk about the perps. Because for me, neither one of these perpetrators is particularly, you know, really all that engaging. Like, Betty's in- no. Betty, Betty is interesting, but Larry Mitchell is not. Uh, Clark no. Brandon. Typical. Clark Brandon is, is a bad guy turned good. Kind of bad again, but good, really. Like, you know, he's noble and Chandler... Sorry, Marlowe sees that in himself, but I don't really think he's likable very much. Um, maybe you know, he is, in, you know, well, I, I like, don't know.
1: It, it took Marlowe convincing to get into his office at the end there, it, like until yeah, he offered yeah. him a cigar. Like he basically, even though he's done good, he's also, even though he's, you know, he's a bad guy who went good, so to speak, he's still a, he's still, whatever way. It seems like the, what, the reason why he became good was because he could become, I guess, uh socially good in in the Mm -hmm, way of in mm -hmm. in the way of like being like a a powerful uh social figure in the community and that's what he was achieved at he wanted to be looked upon by his peers uh but then but then you know it does mention that even even though because i think the old man was telling them how brandon even though like he looked at high in the community they still treat the community like the, the, the i guess the aristocracy of esmeralda they still treat him kind of, uh, they they look down upon him because he's basically nouveau riche, right? So despite, you know, having all this influence. Yeah. So he's someone who's always trying to keep up pretense that he's a gentleman or someone who's a, a member of the community when in fact, you know, he's nothing but, he's still the gangster at heart. He's like someone who's trying, go, trying to go legitimate, but, you know, he can't, he can't hide himself. And the fact that he wouldn't let Marlowe in the, in the room until, you know, it took him some convincing of his, of his own personal interest that were affected were, or possibly influenced by Marlowe's, you know, uh, having a conversation with Marlowe uh, or using Marlowe in, 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 for his own interests. That, to me, indicated that he's, you know, he was not really willing to be open or, or, or become a magnanimous individual,
0: yeah no that's a good point and it's also I probably
1: gave him much more development than he deserved there but <laughs> well I think
0: I think you probably did but that raises my question because Chandler leaves so much of that development just for us to play with uh, like off the page how good is he and how convincing is he as a character for us to care about because you know we know that he he's fallen for Betty and that he seems to like her but you know Carmelo Soprano <laughs> fell for her husband at some point too, right? Like, yeah. Uh, and I okay, fine. Maybe that's a bad example because Tony's not that bad a guy, even you know. But he is really. He mm-hmm. is.
1: Tony's a. I I think James Gandolfini did an amazing performance. Sopranos was an excellent show, and Tony Soprano's was a fascinating character. But he was a piece of shit. I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry. Okay. You're right. He was. <laughs> he, he, he was a piece of shit. I mean. <laughs> You're right. it's and you can sympathize. You can look at it. For example, Goodfellas. Uh, look at uh, Henry Hill's wife, played by Lorraine Bracco, mm-hmm. also from The Sopranos.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and she was brought in there because she kind of got off on the violence and power that her husband offered her. Right? Like, yeah. if you if, if you if you recall the scene, like when they first meet. You know, they were fine together and they were hitting it off, and mm-hmm. he was showing her all this wealth and power. You know, in the Coca Cabana. Uh, tracking shot scene and you know all the stuff that he could give her but it wasn't until you know she was really into him when he basically pistol whipped her uh assaulter like in his driveway and he told her to hide the gun and then she's like I I gotta admit it turned me on Mm -hmm. and you know what I mean so certain type of people like Camilla Soprano are drawn to men like that and we don't know enough about Camilla Sopranos and Tony's early marriage to see why
0: she was into him Right. I mean and the the point stands we don't know enough about Clark Brandon or Larry Mitchell. Exactly. All we know about, the most we get about Larry Mitchell is from Clarendon the 4th as they're sitting in the hotel room and I, I feel like we're yes. chasing we're chasing characters that we never really get to know and that doesn't help with me investing in their interest or investing in their no. their stories and I feel like the only thing to look at is, and to really get interested in here is Marlowe and his movements but Marlowe and the first half of the story isn't terribly isn't a character I really like and Larry Mitchell and, you know, Betty, like these characters are, are are failing to communicate any sort of depth or interest for me. And when, when the secondary and the perpetrator cast don't do what they normally do for you, you've got to hold on to your main character. And unfortunately the main character in the story is really not that awesome. So it's, it's going to be tough to score high on playback. I think when, the perpetrator isn't really cool, or the principal isn't really good. That that's kind of how I look at it. And and then you yeah, get the, then you get yeah, the absolutely. other question, Josh: Is who is our actual perpetrator here? Like Betty isn't. We know that um, she's
1: sort of a sphere of influence. Everything revolves yeah. around. I I I suppose mm-hmm. in that fashion. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, like Brandon's drawn to her sphere. You know, uh, there's all there's a femme fatale, I guess, tease about her, but then that carpet is kind of pulled over, you know, pulled under yeah, the rug, and yeah. she's actually a woman on the rung, not because she stole documents or whatever, but uh-huh. because you know Chandler, you know, makes her a damsel in distress in the end because she makes her uh, right. basically being persecuted by uh, this guy uh, by her father-in-law because of her husband's death, and her husband wasn't a good man either, no, and right. he possibly, you know, was he, he pros- and he possibly died, you know when she was trying to defend herself in in, in some capacity, right? Mm-hmm. So.
0: Mm-hmm. No, you, you make good points, man. It, it's really tricky to know how Betty fits into this perpetrator or secondary or femme fatale role. Because as you say, it's the characters like Larry and Clark and her dad or her father-in-law um, behind the scenes they're the ones who really are the criminals here and uh, they're just not interesting or deep enough for me to go high so i went for a 2.5 on perpetrator because i don't really care about any of the baddies in this story
1: i found the the redhead assassin he was kind of interesting for a few moments that he was there oh, he I kind was. Of wanted more yeah, of him.
0: yeah but he's only three scenes in he's only got three scenes yeah. right he or, was sorry, a savage like though three like, paragraphs almost
1: yeah like, he, he, he was a savage, though. Like, I can see someone, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, like, Burn Gorman play him or something like that, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I can see that, too, yeah.
1: Just, like, he was just, like, a typical, like, nasty henchman.
0: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: And Chandler does those well, but he usually gives him a bit of character. This guy was just, like, a psycho. Um, but he, he, <laughs> he was put it. down pretty he, pretty easily because maybe he wasn't the best strategist, either more of just a sadist, you know yeah, what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think so. But, but that does raise a question about who or what's on Clark Brandon's Rolodex. You know who's Definitely. he calling that when? Again, when he kill, calls these guys,
1: and then again, like you can still go legitimate. Like Michael Corleone went legitimate. You know, at, at the by the end of The Godfather That's too. Right. But yeah. Yeah. he did a lot of nasty stuff <laughs> to get to where to get the family legitimate. If 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 if, if, if you catch my drift. Yeah. So. You know, like, yeah, he's a he's like, you know, he owns the hotel and he's gone respectable, but he's probably but he's laundered all of his dirty money into those things. So he's still corrupt, in my opinion. It doesn't change what he is. It kind of makes him even worse in a way. And, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, how Chandler defended Lucky Luciano as like a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show, you know, like, even though like Luciano was a gangster, he admitted who the hell he was, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to this guy who's pretending to be something that he's not. And he's phony in that fashion. And that kind of makes him even worse, I guess, in Chandler's perspective. And
0: I suppose in in, in my own as well. So what did you go for, buddy, with your perp score? I went with two. You went with a two. Wow. Okay. So you, you really disliked them. Or at least uh, that little half mark more than me. So you failed them. This they is one just, of the, yeah one of your failing scores.
1: Yeah, I just found them completely uh-huh. uninteresting and yeah. uh, and and just like they they seem like they're they were very like tropey pulp characters in mm. my opinion. And and Chandler
0: has been with like these types before in a much more interesting way in my opinion. Yeah, most definitely. And for evidence of those interesting ways, go listen to any of the previous episodes we've done on Chandler stories because every perp you find is better than the ones in this story.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Uh, okay, let's move on to environments, my friend. Now, for me, this was a strong point of the story. It wasn't a, a five, but it was definitely a strong point of the story for me. And I think part of that just rests in the flavor of being somewhere different. You know, I liked hmm. I liked the Rancho Descansado. I liked the Casa del Poniente. I liked the idea of Esmeralda there, this sort of coastal area, this, uh, which I think is well described, you know, in the hills and the, and it, and it, the highways is, and all yeah. of that. I thought that was really cool. I like, I like the, the mobility of the motel most generally and those two places stood out for me but there are specifics within this text that i like too like the glass room restaurant and if if you'll entertain me for just a moment i'd like to share that one little bit with you this is this is when Marlowe enters the glass room the entrance lobby was on a balcony which looked down over the bar and a dining room on two levels a curving carpeted staircase led down to the bar Nobody was upstairs but the hat-check girl and an elderly party in a phone booth whose expression suggested that nobody better fool with them. I went down the stairs to the bar and tucked myself in a small, curved space that commanded a view of the dance floor. One side of the building was an enormous glass window. Outside of it was nothing but fog, but on a clear night with a moon low over the water, it would have been sensational. A three-piece Mexican band was making the kind of music a Mexican band always makes. Whatever they play, it all sounds the same. They always sing the same song, and it always has a nice open vowels and a drawn-out sugarly lilt, and the guy who sings it always strums on a guitar, and has a lot to say about senor, about amor, mi corazon, a lady who is Linda, but very hard to convince, and he always has too long and too oily hair, and when he isn't making with the love stuff, he looks as if his knife work in the alley would be efficient and economical. On the dance floor, half a dozen couples were throwing themselves around with the reckless abandon of a night watchman with arthritis. Most of them were dancing cheek to cheek, if dancing is the word. So... The, the, the big window by the sea, I think that that's really quite, not just romantic, but capital R, romantic, you know, very evocative, very natural, and trying to use the, the function of the two rooms with that spiral staircase sloping down to the bar and the lower level and the dance floor. I like this environment, and this this is really cool, and I like being in the glass room. And even the Epicure, you know, that darkly lit um, mm-hmm. restaurant that he meets Gobelin in later. That, gobel in, yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's pretty cool, too. So, at some points, you know, the environment, do, do speak here. To me, of like a a psycho type vibe going on, Uh, a a spy who loved me, I guess. To talk about Fleming, there's something like that going on here, and this idea of a that's right, yeah, and and the temporary space does help a little bit to to heighten the tension The bus
1: stations, the train stations, that's right. The cab, the cab, the cab stands, the hotel lobbies. Is that transit? Is that kind of that you know way stations? I guess Mm -hmm. you know to. Uh, some sort of fulfillment by the end of the story. And uh-huh. interesting too, I just, one thing is um, in Spanish, the word Linda, I think mm-hmm. I think it means beautiful or something mm-hmm. like that. And then, you know, I wonder if the word Linda was deliberately chosen and then it's kind of a, a, a foreshadowing to Linda appearing at the end of the story yeah. where, you know, that's very possible. Yeah. Another point of, of reference uh, is that the way that Chandler describes Esmeralda, he's clearly talking about La Hola, uh of mm-hmm. course, where he spent the li- where, where he spent most of his life uh, of course, with yeah. uh, with with Sissy, and also you know where he went back to um, after uh, he returned from England the final time. Yeah. So it's you know so he, this is a community that he could, could very well describe and whatnot, and the fact that he put it into his last novel, I think, is significant. Hmm. And maybe this was tended to be more of a, a final novel at the time when he was writing it than, it than it was supposed to be. And I guess maybe in the last bits of a glimmer of hope that he had near the end of his life with Helga Green and uh, building up to that proposal to her father so that he could marry her, you know, before all that occurred. It seems to me that uh, maybe, you know, this was like a dark time when he wrote this and then... Yeah. Afterwards, he, he, that's maybe he went on to Poodle Springs afterwards because he had that light in the tunnel again. I suppose mm-hmm. you could say.
0: Great title. I, I really like the the idea of Poodle Springs. Which, in, you know, in terms of the environment, that that's a neat that's a yeah. neat place, isn't it, to visit. You'd like to a,
1: visit Poodle Springs. it's a parody on palm springs
0: apparently yeah Yeah, i bet anyway so what did you go for i went for a four with the environments here because i think that you're not going to mind moving through these places and some of them are really going to stick out for you like they did at least they did for me maybe maybe i went three and maybe i should have gone three and a half but i'm going for because i think that's the standout feature of the story that won't bore or sort of trod down the, the reader but i went four. what did you go for
1: yeah yeah chandler is always great in his atmosphere um in that respect I've seen them do better, in my opinion, but of course, thinking yes. about Lahola, I just feel that um, you know more and more now. It, it seems to me that that was his intention in this with the story, and I can kind of see in a biographical context on why he put it in here. especially, you know, equating himself to Marlowe and mm-hmm. the sexual escapades he was having with that, and, and 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 other matters. I still feel that three and a half is pretty darn good for uh the, the yeah. environs it really is and that yeah. and that and that's my rating three and a half
0: yeah fair point buddy um fair point
1: one, one of the stronger parts of the story absolutely
0: yeah well let's finish up our pipes then with the secondary characters these are the characters who just kind of support the action
1: i was a bit generous with this one guy uh, three and a half mm-hmm. uh i just found the secondary characters were much more interesting than the perpetrators very uh, much so yeah like yeah, like, Betty May- Mayfield was definitely a, a nomadic, but I found her interesting, and I wanted to see more of her, and mm-hmm. I was kind of disappointed by the end of it, how she was kind of just, like, I guess, t- she's tied up in a nice little bow, oh, she marries Brandon at the end, like, there was no kind of ambigu- a- ambiguity to that, I suppose, but there was ambiguity, because I should think about that now, because, like, who knows where that's going to go to, is she going to be, like, a gangster's mall her mm-hmm. whole life, like, she's going from one, possibly, ab- one abusive man... Over to a man who could possibly be abusive to her as well that's if right. she tries to you know balk his authority in any yeah, any exactly. capacity
0: and who knows even you know how they got together like what what's their story you know how where does this yes. come from i feel like that's that was a little bit shoehorned in there too like well brandon has kind of proven himself noble in a sense because he's killed a guy who takes advantage of all sorts of women but he's still a murderer and he's still a crook and he's still put noble through the press with uh, richard harvest and all that so it it, it's a really weird one you don't you don't feel like betty is really on her way to success and love do you no,
1: definitely not. She's kind of like I kind of yeah, like she's like in a, in a kind of like in a, a Sansa Stark situation where she goes from like one asshole <laughs> <Yeah>. to another <laughs> yeah. asshole.
0: That's true, yeah. You, you, yeah. You,
1: you, you know what I mean? And
0: mm-hmm. and Marlowe like,
1: helps with that. <laughs> I mean, he helps with yeah, that. I I know that's the sad part about it, and uh, and is kind of indifferent to it as well. So another, I think, flaw in the writing of his character you can point out is just through that alone. You're absolutely
0: um, right. Like I can see in a different story, a story maybe that Chandler would have written ten years before. In this situation, Marlo finding a way to put those $5,000 aside for Betty, put her on a train, put her on a train and say, Get the fuck out of here because these guys, they're all poison to you.
1: Yeah, like you got to have, he needed he need to do a Merle Davis with her, in my opinion. But I mean, she couldn't <laughs> yeah, go back yeah. home though because of her yeah. father in law though. That, that's the main issue. No,
0: but he could have he brought her down to Mexico maybe like he did for his buddy, you know, in the he long could've. goodbye and got her a place.
1: I think in her decision, maybe to be with him, she knew that this guy could protect her from. Uh, yeah, I guess from so. kin, from kin slash mm. Cumberland, right? So he's
0: the best of a bad lot. Clark, Clark yeah, and, Brandon, and
1: maybe yeah. he is and maybe he is trying to go legitimate maybe he is a gangster with a heart of gold i, I suppose you could say and wanted to change his ways so you never know and chandler was sympathetic to, to that kind of mindset a lot mm-hmm. of people were like if you look sure. in the 1930s yeah. even like the you know during the dust bowl heroes like Bo- people like bonnie and clyde and john dillinger they were tr- cheered as heroes by the public because they stole from the banks which was the man who was basically it was it, it, those are the ones who still had the money and everyone else was starving you know what mm-hmm. i mean and yeah
0: and even even so if you wanted to extend it to something like the Robin Car-
1: Hood complex, I guess you could say.
0: Okay, you're talking Robin Hood complex, and that's very that's very uh, very fitting. I was thinking also in the climate of McCarthyism, you know, you, you might sympathize mm-hmm. you might sympathize with uh, in retrospect, you know, you might sympathize with some people who are being uh, brushed aside or incarcerated or you know ruined through the media because of their mm-hmm. uh, you know publicized or private allegiance yeah. to to a socialist cause right
1: yeah McCarthyism
0: the first cancel culture yeah for sure so there's some interesting stuff here with Clark Brandon but yeah that's not enough on the page for us to go away and think yeah great the more interesting secondary characters for me uh I, I really like the rapport that Marlowe gets with Jack and Lucille at the hotel I find that really quite human and quite loving it oh a yeah they were yeah? great
1: they were great yeah I shipped them, and, 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 yep. And, and, yep. and I was happy about the uh, the ring and, and, and all that at the end, too. That yeah, was it was
0: it was really cool. Just a little bit here, I'll read of that. These these were speaking of uh, Jack and Lucille. They're the ones who work at the front desk of the Casa. No, sorry, the Rancho Descansado. They're the ones. Who the Rancho Descansado. After a while, I went down to the office. Well, it didn't work, I said. Does either one of you happen to have noticed a cab driver who took her away? Joe Harms, the girl said promptly. You ought to maybe find him at the stand halfway up the Grand, or you could call the office. Pretty nice guy. He made a pass at me once and missed by from here to Paso Robles, the clerk sneered. Oh, I don't know. You didn't seem to be there. Yeah, he sighed. You work 20 hours a day trying to put enough together to buy a home, and by the time you have, 15 other guys have been smooching your girl. Not this one, I said. She's just teasing you. She glows every time she looks at you. I went out and left them smiling at each other. And by this point, of course, Marlowe has kind of endeared himself to them. And this young couple who work at the hotel, they're just really nice, aren't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a nice little moment. there's nice little bits in, like, I, I find in this novel, like, and also mm-hmm. sad bits, too, but they're oh, very yeah. well written, like, those, th- th- you know, that couple, and I also talked about, you know, the poor parking lot attendant as well, that sympathetic sort of look at, you know, people who are being left on the wayside, you know, by yeah, society. very much. And, uh, and I also really enjoyed, too, another great character, even though he appears near the end, but I really liked him, Was 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 Captain Alessandro, he was a really, a refreshing cop character, like, the fact that he's possibly, like, Italian or, uh, Sp- or you know, Mexican in background, that to me indicates, you know, that there was also some kind of sympathy there on Chandler's end as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, just, just, just basically saying, you know, that in, later in his life, you know, and maybe being around the crowd that he was in, you know, like, maybe people like the Spenders and whatnot, you know, they weren't... <laughs> you know, as racist as, like, you know, their predecessors and being part of the literary society they were in. So maybe, just maybe, you know, like, that was rubbing off on him and Mm -hmm. he wanted to portray people of colour in a more positive light in this story.
0: I think that's an excellent point. Because
1: Clark Brandon is white, we have a ginger murderer, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we're going really yeah. full Caucasian. But you know what? As, as, as a redhead myself, yeah.
0: I got to step in. And, you know, this Richard Harvest <laughs> thing. And I got to tell you, buddy, it always feels like Chandler smears the redheads. You think about it. I'm not talking about the redheaded women who do tend to be kind of like vixen characters. But I'm talking about the men. Like
1: Eleanor, like um, Mayfield's a redhead, isn't she? That That's what he described her as.
0: Yes, but if you think about the long goodbye, we've got that. Oh, God. Right? And, and, and Farewell, My Lovely, too. And Farewell, My Lovely. But the redhead we do get at the end of Farewell is the cop. Remember, there's a cop from Bay City who turns out to be good. He's kind of like retired cop that helps him get onto the boats.
1: Oh, the male redheads, yeah. The male right. redheads. yeah. My, 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 my mind yeah. went to a different place completely. I'm very sorry.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, uh, he has like a Norwegian name. It's That's name right. Name. Yes,
0: he does indeed. Anyway, I'm I'm kind of moving away from the point, but yeah, I I see what you're saying. Um, and Alessandro is awesome, and the character of the parking lot attendant, the fact that he doesn't have a name, you know, it's kind of says something about the anonymity of these working immigrant types, doesn't it? Hmm, it does. And you know,
1: and just like the final scene with him, you know, when when Marlo discovers him in the outhouse, and yeah, it's just yeah. it's really it, yeah, it was quite very depressing. It's really quite chilling. I've, I think Marlo was, I think Chandler was, I, I think he was trying to paint a picture there for us in some capacity about, you know, that we should have sympathy for these people that we're leaving, leaving behind, you know, yeah. in, in this situation. Mm-hmm. So even though I think, you know, as a, someone who lives in, the, who lived in the city, who lived outside the city, who lived in high circles, he did come from a lower class background as well. And we talk about, you know, he, you know he had the demons that brought up his father for him, who uh-huh. abused his mother, because his father was an alcoholic, uh, Maurice. Uh, it just seems to me that he's sympathetic to that culture and to that outlook, regardless of of, of race and and see the, the type of racism that Chandler had. I don't think he was particularly prejudiced himself. Um, I, I just think it was just born in, in his culture, and it, mm-hmm. we'll never know, of course. Of but course, at we the won't same know. Time, I, I I feel the sympathy in the pages. I think is what I'm yeah. trying to say, and,
0: and I agree with you. And I think chapter 17, which is when Marlow goes back to talk to the the attendant, I think that that chapter does have some some very. I, I, it won't. I won't call it coded because it's not coded. I think it is there for us to read, but there there's certainly some subtle points of compassion or sympathy with that immigrant cause. You know, um, because Marlow asks him, you know, are you Mexican, and he says. I'm part Chinese, part Hawaiian, part Filipino, and part N. The N-word. Uh, you'd hate to be me. Just one more question. How in the hell do you get away with it? The muggles, I mean. He looked around. I only smoke when I feel extra special low. What the hell's it to you? What the hell's it to anybody? Maybe I get caught and lose a crummy job. Maybe I get tossed in a cell. Maybe I've been in one my all life. Carried around with me. Satisfied? He was talking too much. People with unstable nerves are like that. One moment monosyllables, next moment a flood, the low, tired monotone of his voice went on. I'm not sore at anybody. I live, I eat, sometimes I sleep. Come around and see me sometime. I live in a flea bag in an old frame cottage on Polton's Lane, which is really an alley. I live right behind the Esmeralda hardware store. The toilet's in a shed, I wash in the kitchen, yet a tin sink. I sleep on a couch with broken springs. Everything there is 20 years old. This is a rich man's town. Come and see me. I live on a rich man's property. It's almost this idea of like released indentured slave, you know,
1: like feudalism. Like you yeah, know how like yeah, the peasants yeah. had to live on the land, live by the they had to live on the land owned mm-hmm. by the lord, right? Mm-hmm. And they 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 were allowed to be tenants there to right. have their families there as long as they you know they tilled the wheat, you know, or yeah. you know sowed the fields. So. It seems to me, you know, that uh, it's almost like an implied feudalism, almost that uh, he's, he's that Chandler is portraying here, which also goes into the symbolism of Marlowe being sort of like this errant, this knight's errant, I guess yeah. you could say, right?
0: Yeah, but you know, Josh, even that bit I read, the sentence structure of that. Where everything is so declarative and straightforward, each sentence kind of has its own item that this guy wants Marlowe to recognize. This is my toilet. This is my sink. I live on a rich man's land. It's almost like there is that didactic tone that's being established. Like, let me tell you something. Let me teach you something about what my life is like. You know, you really asking? Okay, well, listen to this, right?
1: Exactly. This is Chandler just like laying it out there. This is what these people live like. Yeah. Now, is that him just describing for the purposes of realism? Or is that, you know, or yeah. is it him just yeah, describing yeah. that, you know, because he wants to paint a picture to evoke that feeling in the mm-hmm. reader of, symp- of sympathy?
0: Well, uh, it's, yeah. uh who it's knows? It's hard to say. It is hard to say. And I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm not so defensive of Chandler that I would say, yes, that's what he's liking to do. He's trying to be progressive here, but I would like to think that he is is aware at least of the, and of course, he's aware of the inequality, you know, the, the, the kind of melting pot that we've got going on at the time. Uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. But it, it, I guess what what we're really doing here we're we're paddling around the point that the secondary story characters or the secondary characters in this story are are really quite interesting. And then we've got Clarendon the Fourth, the old man who kind of sits, white gloved, uh, very proper, and watches people and collects information. He's a really interesting spider kind of character.
1: yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. um it'd be kind of like other i think lesser stories would have even made that guy like the the big wig in charge almost you know but yeah sure why not but Chandler just like nope this is someone i you know when i when i went to to travel like in italy or in tangier or if i was in or one of the resorts we me and sissy went to in california on the coast this is one of these people that he would run into or in the lobbies of these hotels and he would sit down and talk to you know and have a drink with you know what i mean and if to have an have, excuse to have a drink, of course. Yeah. So it just seems like this is someone that, you know, that he would deal with on a regular day basis. And he knew these type of people very well. And and that shows on the
0: page. Yep, yeah, it does for sure. Uh, and I second your point. I mean, I didn't want to kind of skip over your point, but what you were saying about Alessandro was, was really worth saying. And it's fun to see Marlowe work with the police officer that respects him or at the very least sees what he's doing and and doesn't want to give him shit for it like he's and I, I i like that it was refreshing and it would be neat to see alessandro in in a larger novel not because he's like the greatest character of all time but just because he's he's something that i think does reflect a bit of realism like not all the cops are rotten not all the cops are out for the pis you know like los angeles is los angeles but the periphery these towns villages these uh, these these suburbs and these coastal environments why can't they why can't they be why can't there be some some spots of goodness in there you know
1: exactly and agree and this is this is a small town cop you know being a decent man and then you have comparison to small town you know north carolina guy uh consolving right yeah. who's who's just like bigwig in his town is almost like he runs it like a like a feudal lord in his own way, right? And, he does, and, yeah. But, but, but but you know, when he goes out west where all this money is and stuff compared to his money, he's powerless to, to do anything against Betty uh, due to, you know, like, the law, for one thing, because yeah. of the judge that yeah. ruled against him, and not only that, because Alessandro, you know, doesn't doesn't give a crap about what he says, right. and, yeah. and of course Clark, and of course uh, Brandon's influence is against him as well, so he's really powerless in that situation.
0: He's entirely powerless. Um, he's like a big fish out of his pond. Uh, sorry, a big fish from a small pond into a much bigger pond. But I have to ask you, buddy, when there's you There's always were,
1: a bigger fish. There's always a bigger page. fish.
0: That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when when you were reading him. Did you get any sort of – did you get any Harlan Potter vibes? Because I certainly did. Here's a big guy. He's a media guy. Mm. He's throwing a lot of his weight around – And I guess the difference is that he's not in his own pond here. But it almost feels like we've got kind of the same cookie cutter, you know, that's going pump, pump, clump, 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 trying to just pick from his back catalog of recent or past recent characters. Yeah, this guy will do for two scenes. Rich old guy who's angry about something that's happening to his daughter-in-law. You know what I mean?
1: Yep. Very typical. Very typical. He wasn't very much interesting. Now, go back to some characters. So... Betty Mayfield, we talked about her already. She seemed interesting, but as we discussed, we never really got to see the end of her arc or her story. We just kind of assumed that she's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, another character we have is Gobler, the private detective. I found him kind of interesting because he was so antagonist uh, with, uh, with, with Marlowe. At first, yeah. And I kind yeah. of wanted m- more of him. But mm-hmm. I kind of liked how Chandler kind of built, built him up as this tough guy who could have been a real problem. But then he's easily capacitated by, you know, the but by the redhead assassin mm-hmm. uh, in the hotel room and Marlo ends up saving him as well. So that's right.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. And yeah. then he, he just sort of says, yeah, sorry, I got, he kind of apologizes there as he's half beaten because <laughs> he, or as he's beaten by saying, yeah, I'm in over my head. I stepped in too deep. I thought I could do something. And didn't he say something as well as uh, of, of almost falling for Betty himself?
1: Yeah. Basically did he not, he did he not that. say
0: that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's basically like a, uh, I guess a bloated version, a bloated fallen version of Marlowe is, essentially is what, it, it, or what Marlowe <laughs> could have become, you know? And.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, he's, yeah, he's I mean, interesting. Gobel was interesting, but that, that antagonistic scene, you put the right word on it, that they shared at the, the restaurant, the Epicure, where everything was dark yeah. and everything was kind of dismal and Marlowe had to pick up the bill and all of that stuff. Like, I found that that was enough just. That was that was kind of pushy on Chandler's part, you know. Like, here's a guy you like, can't like him because he's he's on the other end. He's he's the guy that represents, you know, bringing Betty in.
1: But also, too, there's also a class uh, class war thing going on there too because Goebel's from the Midwest or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, Kansas and, City, and, and he's Kansas City exactly. So mm-hmm. he's very, you know, like he's snobby towards the culture of the Epicure and marlo is snobby towards him maybe because this is chandler coming through because marlo knows they're in a good establishment a good place you know where yeah, yeah. good people work and stuff so marlo but if is up a snob in his own way he's on he's on his high horse so to speak our night and looking down at you know this this little you know like uh uh scavenger i guess you could say yeah, uh Goebbler, for sure G- gobel in that way gobel i keep yeah. calling him gobels because i think of gobels the nazi propaganda minister but um i don't think uh there's no real comparison between the two no there really isn't Is there... <laughs>
0: yeah. i don't know Go well, gobels might have folded a gobel gobels may have folded like a cheap suit that way too who knows
1: mm, who knows we'll never know Anyway, buddy. I don't care to know.
0: I, absolutely. Well, I mean, if, if, we're lo- if we're looking at our pipes then, and we're bringing our scoring of playback to a close, we both went three and a half for our secondary characters. You were three and a half for the environment, I was four. You were two for the perps, I was two and a half. We were three for investigation, and you were three for principles, and I was two and a half. So so what, is, right. what does that get you? That gives you six, eight eight and seven you're 15 and i am 15.5 so i did like the story a touch more than you
1: it's still i would say the weakest Marlowe novel and but 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 for very understandable reasons yes that it kind of puts it in 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 a what if scenario for me Mm, more so than it does like a final scenario i guess a final rating i suppose you could say
0: yeah Interesting, yeah. It is definitely the weakest of the stories. It was the less engaging, and uh, I, I, I would even say that unless you're a completist, nah, you could probably skip it.
1: Yeah, I don't. Know. I'm more excited about Poodle Springs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Poodle Springs. Yeah, that'll be good. I should. We, we should maybe put that on our list to read later, shouldn't we?
1: Yeah, I think we should come back to it. And I, I know, I think Robert Parker, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he's the one that wrote "Devil in a Blue Dress" because I believe he had, no, like, that an African Clive American. Moseley. That was Clyde Mosley.
0: That was Clyde Mosley. Oh, Mosley uh, or Walter Mosley. Is... Walter Mosley. Walter Mosley.
1: Yeah, oh, that's right. But he, I was thinking, I was thinking of of that story because I know that character that Denzel Washington played in that yeah, movie. Yeah. He's also a recurring detective character. Yeah. Like, uh, so it would be interesting to maybe to look at Mosley. So, what did Parker write then? I'm trying to remember what Park Robert Parker wrote. Anyway, I messed up on that one.
0: (laughs) Well, I read that book uh, "Devil in a Blue Dress" at university many, many years ago in my American Lit class. I I think it's worth a rewrite or a reread, and maybe that's one. I haven't
1: read it so. I definitely yeah. be, be excited to read it to see that perspective cuz yeah. cuz of course it's from the perspective of an African American mm-hmm. uh detective, right?
0: Sorry, I was just going to say there was a recent interview with Mosley in the Strand magazine that I've got and uh, I think that'll be worth In work. the
1: Strand of all plays uh-huh. really Oh
0: yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, the Strand, yeah. It comes out quarterly and I got a subscription, so I've been reading a lot of good stuff there.
1: Excellent. If your story or a chapter gets published in The Strand, then you know you're high up on the mystery novel echelons for sure.
0: Uh, yeah, it's still it's still putting out some decent stuff. Um, we can talk about The Strand maybe a little bit later on in uh, in future episodes, but. Before we get to, before we get too far ahead in sort of our plans for what happens next, we should uh, we should say to the listener that um, we're going to release a separate episode very, very soon. It'll be a shorter episode on some of our rankings, like we did with the Holmes, where we, we finished the pipes on the Sherlock Holmes canon and we ranked our favorite characters and whatnot. We're going to do that as well. A couple of you have been asking on the socials, so we appreciate that. We're going to do that. Uh, but we're, we're not going to do it here today. We originally conceived of putting it on the tail end of this episode, but uh, we thought playback did deserve its own fair shake and its own episodes and I'm glad we didn't kind of squeeze it so that we could fit in more because I think we've I think at least we've talked it and we've stretched it out and we've let it breathe a bit
1: yeah and while we talk about you know the end of Chandler's life in this including the writing of playback I think it's important that uh you know not only in that episode where we are going to rate all the Chandler novels the Marlowe sweep so to speak I think it's important that uh, we discuss the legacy of Chandler and, yes, as, yeah. as well. I, I think we should we should have that be the main focus is is the legacy of, of, of Raymond Chandler, what he, how he influenced the mystery novel, the film noir, mm-hmm. and just so many aspects of pulp culture that we see today.
0: Yeah, I agree, buddy, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, and we won't have to wait quite as long to get that episode out there because we're pretty much ready to go with it. So it'll be a lot of fun to have that uh, to have that chat when when we get over to it very soon.
1: It but, will be, absolutely.
0: So yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm quite excited about that and I'd like to thank all of our listeners for for taking this Raymond Chandler journey with us. Um it, it's been a long journey and I'm I'm really glad that we did it. I know there are some short stories that we've left out and poodle springs, you know, and all of that, but but for the most part, I think we've done the sweep, we've done it well, and our next episode will be a lot of fun when we go to rank rank these different things and features.
1: Darn straight. This was definitely a journey. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, it was very fulfilling for me, you know, to see the foundations of a genre that I've always loved yeah. and a style of filmmaking and writing and artistic expression that I always
0: loved as well. Okay, dude, well, uh, why don't we say goodbye then for now and then we'll come back very shortly uh, with another episode to finish off Chandler properly, talk about his legacy, do the rankings and give the listeners what they want. Sounds good to me. All right, pal. Bye-bye. bye bye